This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk, the Justin Fields podcast is upon us. It's also Rutgers Week. We may mention Rutgers' name again or may not in the course of this two-hour podcast. Stephen Means, Nathan Barrett, and I'm Doug Maurice. James Laurinaitis, who is calling the game on the Big Ten Network on Saturday, will be along later for an interview previewing that game, comparing these Buckeyes to the 2006 Ohio State Buckeyes that he was part of that went wire-to-wire number one before losing in the national championship game. First, some quick Ohio State headlines. Chase Young will be back for the Penn State game. Ohio State announcing on Wednesday afternoon that the NCAA has ruled on Young accepting a loan from a family friend. He was held out of the Maryland game. The NCAA has decided that he will also miss the Rutgers game on Saturday, but it will be a two-game absence for Chase Young. He will return for Penn State, and that's what matters for the Ohio State Buckeyes. Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith in the release was uh, effusive in his praise for the NCAA and for Ohio State in how they handled this. He also praised Chase Young for uh, admitting his mistake, fully cooperating, and allowing this process to unfold pretty quickly. No real surprises in how this uh, unfolded. I think a lot of people thought it might be two games. I think a lot of people thought the decision would be uh, handed down this week, and that's what happened. You just never know what might be around the corner with the NCAA, but nothing was around the corner here. Two games for Chase Young, and then Ohio State's best player and the best defensive player in the country will be back. For the number two Ohio State Buckeyes, who were second in the college football playoff rankings revealed on Tuesday night, the Buckeyes had been number one in the initial rankings. Everyone expected LSU would move to number one after beating Alabama. That did happen. Ohio State still will have an opportunity with wins against Penn State, Michigan, to probably have a very good shot to get back to number one. Uh, again, this all matters for seeding. If Ohio State and LSU both went out, they will be battling for that number one seed. That could be a factor uh, in, in terms of who might have to get number three Clemson uh, as the number two team in the playoff and who might get it, that, that sort of mystery number four team right now. But Ohio State, number two in the rankings, going to Rutgers on Saturday, 3.30 kickoff in New Jersey. Won't be much of a game. Buckeyes favored by 52 in that one. And that will be the final game that they will be missing Chase Young. Those are our Buckeye headlines. And if you didn't notice, I added this in after the fact because the Chase Young news broke after we were done recording this morning. And I'm going to get into this in the last part of Buckeye Talk. We're going to have a good Justin Fields discussion, a good playoff discussion. We'll have the interview with James Laurinaitis, and then I will come back, just me at the end, to take more questions from you guys and deal with the fallout of the Chase Young decision. But uh, we're kind of piecing this together because stuff happens sometimes, folks. Now get ready for Buckeye Talk. Let's get to the Justin Fields podcast. Again, you can uh, send us reviews on iTunes. You know, we like it. We like it when you give us a review. And we like it if you read our stuff. 
And we have stuff coming, and I want to, this is a good question that gets into everything that Nathan is dealing with, because this is Nathan's world. He went to Georgia to learn more about Justin Fields, Ohio State's quarterback, and Luke from Denver, and this is the tech subscription. You can sign up, 14-day free trial, four bucks a month. Sign up now. It'll take you almost through the Michigan game at this point. Or you could wait like until Monday of Penn State week, get like Penn State and Michigan free, and then decide if they're in the playoff, do you maybe want to play f- pay four bucks for the whole month of December to have texts arrive in your phone about a team that might win the national championship? I think that's a great $4 value. Get it as an early Christmas present for yourself. And then get rid of me. Fine, get rid of me when the season's end. No, don't really. I need you to stick around. Um, from Luke in Denver, I'm really excited to read the Fields articles. Did Nathan talk to family and friends of Justin or also individuals involved with Georgia? Was he able to get scoops on why Fields left Georgia or he did not address that subject at all? How big of a role did Dwayne or Urban play in getting Justin to Ohio State? Or was that really just Ryan Day? What age did Justin stop playing baseball and how much does anyone around him attribute that to his success as a quarterback? Okay, that's a lot. I'm sure better questions will get asked and answered. He's Luke from Denver. For the whole package, basically. He's a loyal, loyal... <laughs> Loyal tech subscriber, so Nathan, <laughs> if you just would want to like just speak out loud six stories worth of information into this right. microphone, go ahead. Well, it's uh, it's interesting. It's almost like Luke was along with me on the drive down uh, to, on 71 and 75 to Atlanta. Um, can you bring that back up? Because I want to like, address all of his various... Uh, you had it say, you had the screen up. I, there it is. Well, right there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, some of these will be touched on in, in uh, the various things I'm writing. I don't know that I know a lot more than has already been reported about the Georgia situation. I'm going to kind of take these out of order. Um, only because, I mean, like I said, I think this that has kind of been covered pretty extensively at this point. I know that one of the things that I thought was interesting was they knew full well that Jake Fromm was already there, obviously, and it says something about Fields that he wanted to go there anyway and just thought he could beat him out. So uh, I'm curious, what does it say in totality about, I'm going to go there and beat him out, I didn't beat him out, I left? What does that mean? Like, I don't mean, th- I'm not saying I, that that's so bad, the, the, but... The, the vibe that I get is that they weren't necessarily upset that he, this is a very semantic argument, I suppose, they weren't necessarily upset that he didn't win the job. They thought that he just wasn't used properly or that he didn't get the opportunity, the full opportunity to win the job. That makes sense. When you watch the way that Georgia used him last year, that makes sense. That I, I would have thought maybe like, man, I don't, I don't know that they know what I can actually do here. Yeah. The, the counter argument to that being, they almost won a national championship with the other guy, and they did find packages that put Justin Fields on the field. Now, those were almost exclusively running packages. He did not throw the ball very much at all in the times that he did play for Georgia. And as we've seen, that's obviously taking a huge piece of his athletic ability and just kind of junking it and not using it. So I I think that was really the crux of the frustration was that they saw that he wasn't going to get an opportunity to really be the full quarterback he was, even in a timeshare situation. And I think they saw the family, uh, you know, whoever saw the the greater potential that he has and decided to look for a better option. Um, why is he at Ohio State? I, I think Ryan Day did have a huge piece of that. I sat down with um, – the Harrison High School coach, uh, Matt Dickman, and talked to him pretty extensively about this situation. And he's actually a, a guy who's from Ohio, went to Toledo, 
had had worked, I think, a camp at Ohio State back in the day. So he has a lot of Ohio State ties. And on top of that, Ryan Day, when he was at uh, Temple and uh, maybe Boston College, I think, had come down to Florida to recruit in Matt Dickman's area. So Matt Dickman already knew Ryan Day. And I think there was already a connection there with the family. Um, there's still a couple of people I want to try to to get in touch with to finish this off and to kind of delve into that question. But I get the impression that there had already been some groundwork laid with Ohio State before um, before Justin Fields went into the portal. Because it, it wasn't like Justin Fields was a huge... Ohio State wasn't a huge part of Justin Fields' original commitment out of high school, Correct. but it's not like they didn't know who he was and didn't Correct. have connections. He's a number two, yeah, number two guy in the country. I think you're always putting in your due diligence on guys like that. I was talking to, um, to, to another coach recently, just saying that, like, yeah, you have to almost now you have to go touch base with just about everybody because of the way the portal is. You want that relationship in case something does happen, even if it's a guy you think you can't get. You can maybe come back and get him later because he he decides where he's going uh, doesn't work out as it did with Justin Fields. I think the Fields situation obviously he had committed to Penn State originally, and then when he saw I think both the way his his recruitment could blow up plus Georgia then got interested and that's you know place that's an hour up the road. I think he had always kind of wanted to be a bulldog. Um, that I think he just thought was the best option all around for a lot of reasons. And then when it didn't work out, like I said, I think then I think Ryan Day, that connection probably did mean a lot. I know that, you know, pretty much he was very early on was, was getting in, um, calling Dickman, um, because there is that period then before you can even contact the athlete, you have to kind of, you see they're in the portal and you can reach out to the, like other sources, but you can't contact the athlete for like, what is it? A 48 hour period. I don't, it's know. A, I don't it's, know. There's, there's a period that in which you can't contact them. So, um, what are the questions? Just, that's, um, that's say some more interesting stuff you learned about Justin Fields that people don't well, know yet to tease them into the stuff you're writing. He asked about the baseball and I thought that that was an interesting thing that I learned. I went down there kind of hope, you know, planning to ask people about the baseball situation. And one of his quarterback coaches, um, a guy named Ron Veal had said that he thought that the quarterback that the baseball background helped him be a better football player he played baseball up until his senior year he did not he enrolled at Georgia at the semester um, his senior year of high school so he didn't play baseball as a senior in high school but up until then he had been playing and his mom even told me that they were there was debate going into that senior year whether he was going to enroll at Georgia early or whether he was going to stay in school so that he would then be eligible for the amateur draft in baseball that spring um, because he was such a talent there and such a prospect and had had real opportunities there. But I think Justin just loves football so much that that was where he really wanted to commit himself to. But as I was saying, his quarterback coach and other people I've talked to have said that just the things that you learn, especially the positions he played, he was a shortstop, he was a pitcher. The things that you learn as far as footwork, as far as um, just sort of framing your body the correct way to make throws, um, all those sorts of things uh, – I don't want to call it like choreography, but that's like maybe the best word for it in some ways. Like you, you start to get some muscle memory of how you're supposed to 
the, the optimal way to position your body as an athlete. And there were ways, even as a hitter, and there are ways that that translates over to then having to get in a stance as a quarterback, planting yourself, um, weight transition, those sorts of things. That there is some uh, carryover between those two sports, which I thought was interesting. I hadn't really considered that. I thought it was going to be more of a, hey, do you guys know how good Justin Fields was at baseball? But there, there are people that are saying that there's tangible ways that you can take his baseball background and convert it to what he is now as a quarterback. Could he play at Ohio State? Like, did you get that sense that he like? Because like Jameis Winston, he played at Florida State when he was at Florida. So like, could he? Could Justin play at Ohio State? Um, I suppose he probably could. Um, I mean, I, I think he's good enough. Yeah, to, that's what I'm really. Yeah, oh yeah, more than I think he's good enough. Uh, certainly good enough to play okay. in the Big Ten, um, which is a is a better baseball conference than it used to be, but is not maybe the level of obviously ACC, SEC. Um, I think he could. I, I, I have not brought subject of whether or not he has considered it all. But, I, again, I, I don't get that impression. I think he is fully committed to football. All right, this one, this one is from the 614. What don't we know about Justin Fields to know if he can reach his ceiling? For instance, as a top-10 pick, able to carry a team to a national title, what is it that Fields is good at that makes a big difference that may not be obvious? Like, clearly he can make all the throws and is good at moving around the pocket. Those are obvious is Georgia still undefeated with Justin Fields as their quarterback if they had kept Fields instead of Jake Fromm? Um, and if Justin Fields doesn't reach his potential, it would be because of what? Um, I mean, I, 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 I don't – I think mostly the reason – I think he will reach his peak. I think he's going to end up being – and there's more questions that we'll get into about what 2020 might look like. I mean, it just feels like that now when you watch this guy, this guy has it all, and there are more questions coming about scratching the surface, and I don't feel like we've seen all of it so far. But I feel like his, he's a threat. He, he is a threat to do anything on any snap. And when your quarterback is that, and if you play man coverage and run with everybody and leave the middle of the field open, he'll run. And if you play zone, he'll hit a guy in a soft spot in the zone. And if you try to, you know, key on J.K. Dobbins, then they'll run some zone read, and he can be a threat in the run game. I mean, I think I think the reason that he'll reach his ceiling is because he is a threat in all ways on every snap. And, and, and my only hesitation along the way with Justin Fields was when would he get to that? And I didn't think he would get to it in 2019 or at least in the first half of 2019. Um, but when you're the number two recruit in the country – there's every expectation that you will get to it. So I always thought he'd have a big 2020. I didn't expect him to be this in control in 2019. But what do you guys see that would tell you that, yes, this guy is a national championship quarterback. Yes, this guy might be like the number one pick in the draft in 2020. How would you put that into context of of what it is about him that makes that possible? His demeanor, I think, is like the most important thing there. Like, obviously, we we talk to him every week, other than this week, and he's like the same poised kind of guy. He's just kind of monotone, leveled. And like, I think the first time we met his father, like, I just like in passing, just asked him, "Hey, is he always that like even kill and just shows us? Like, yeah, he's just like that normally. And like, it just kind of translates over onto the football field. You, I don't think we've seen him get rattled other than like one or two times, and like it ended up in like an eighteen yard sack. But for the most part, he just kind of keeps it just like level head chill personality and it shows in his football play and as a quarterback you've got to be able to do stuff like that yeah I think intangibles are a big reason why his ceiling is so within reach for him um and one of the the things that I came away with from talking to people down there was that he always had sort of a confidence about him especially from in the athletic realm although he he kind of 
gained over the course of his high school career more of an appreciation of how good he could be. But I think he always thought he, you know, could go out there and do things he needed to do on the athletic field. But he was not a conceited guy. He was not a he was a guy that everybody in school seemed to like. Um, and I think that is, is something that carries over to football. I think when you've got a guy who the team trusts, and I think we saw that a little bit at Ohio State where he came in and was just sort of, you know, parachuting in and have to, you know, in a very short amount of time, you know, get to know people and also kind of earn that respect in the room and, and earn that respect on the field. And, and he did that. And it goes beyond just athletics. You have to do it in other realms too. So that And, and just his intelligence. That's one of the things I'm going to be writing about is just how smart he is. You know, was like a, a high honor roll kind of kid in high school. But beyond that, has really translated that to the football field. If people were listening yesterday to the Ohio State um, press conferences, you know, Kevin Wilson was talking about that, how he's the guy that the kind of guy that you have to show up to your meetings prepared for. Because if you don't, if you don't kind of challenge him intellectually in the meetings that they have each week, then he kind of tunes you out because he can think this game at a really high level. And you're starting to see examples of that, that on the field. Some There's some ways where maybe his – his body hasn't even caught up to his mind yet. I think Kevin Wilson said that because Urban Meyer was on the Big Ten Network talking about how he learned that someone told him with Tom Brady, Bill O'Brien told Urban, if, with Tom Brady, yeah. if you're not ready to challenge him, like he'll make you feel bad for running a crappy meeting. So I think Kevin Wilson was just trying to get in on some of that <laughs> stuff. Um, Charlie in the 773 asks, what is more important to Ohio State continuing to run the table? A, Justin Fields running the ball on scrambles, on fourth downs, etc. Or B, Justin Fields passing the ball, being accurate to open up running room for JK and that kind of thing. I was thinking it's obviously the run down the stretch, but against the big dogs, it may be the passing game. I mean, of course, they need him to be really good at both, and he has been good at both. I would say the passing game. I agree, and I think it. What one thing that he hasn't had to do yet is, you know, I don't think not, not even necessarily even at the end of a half have they really had to go out and run like a two minute drill and execute with. But especially at the end of a game, you haven't had to do this at all in the second half. Go out and and really execute a two minute drill with the game on the line. Be really precise. Maybe you don't have any timeouts. You can't afford to you know give away possessions and 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 execute in that realm. He hasn't had to do that yet. Um, that's one of the things where this defense has really allowed him. It, he did, he came in the season without a lot of pressure on his back because of how well this defense has played. Um, but at some point, they're probably going to play a team that you know a Clemson, somebody like that, that is also pretty talented defensively, can maybe step up and match them. And now the margin for error shrinks and we haven't seen exactly how he'll perform with the back with his back against the wall kind of situation. And that's what it is. You haven't seen him in those pressurized. We've seen two minute drill from them, but it's more just because Ryan day is being aggressive in the first half right. than it is because which and it's just a different, right? That's you know. just you like go, go, go. We're trying to score really quickly. And we haven't necessarily seen it in a situation where like 10 to seven was the closest it's been. So other than that, he's never really had a pressurized moment in those situations. So I would, I, he had a pressurized moment when Wisconsin scores. I mean, it's not two minute, but Wisconsin scores to make it 10-7. They came right back and yeah. marched down the field. Right. So like they, that was like, okay, offense. Our defense just gave something up. It was the first touchdown of the game. It was one of two touchdowns that matter that they've given up the whole year. But if the offense comes out and does has a three and out, that changes that game. Now Wisconsin gets the ball back with a chance to take the lead. Wisconsin right. never got the ball back in that game with a chance to take the lead because Justin Fields, and I can't remember the whole drive, led them right down the field. I think somebody, I mean, if you get to the point, if you have a team with a bunch of NFL defenders and they say, we're going to like clog stuff up, 
We're not. We're going to try to take away some of the short throws. We're going to try to make sure we spy you a little bit so you can't run. And we're going to make you make more difficult throws. And not all of these are difficult, but last year, and this is on CFB stats, and I've mentioned this before, passing plays of 40 yards or more, Ohio State last year had 14 for the whole season, and that tied for 12th in the country. Through nine games, Ohio State this year has three passing plays of 40 yards or more, and that's 109th in the country. So that's like probably the only thing they do on either side of the ball or special teams that ranks in the hundreds in the country. And part of it is they get short field sometimes. Mm -hmm. Part of it is you hand the ball to J.K. Dobbins and he runs 60 yards, so like you don't have it. They well, have part of it, it is their starting quarterback isn't in the game throwing passes in the for fourth half quarter. The game, yeah. they, they don't. I mean, but but all his other stats. I mean, he's really efficient. He has a lot of touchdowns. Some of his other stats are really good. That is not something that they've tried to do no. all that much. Now, for Ohio State last year, some of those Dwayne Haskins 80, 40 plus yards was a two yard pass to Paris Campbell that he took and ran. And they don't really have guys. They don't have Paris Campbell. KJ Hill's good. KJ Hill's not going to do that. They don't have a a guy. In the receiving game, Chris Olave is good. You're not going to throw Chris Olave a two-yard bubble and have it go 90 yards. So that's part of it. But but it is we have not. And people got again. I think we've talked about it on the podcast before. People really like the the deep ball he dropped in the bucket in the spring game. They just haven't really tried that. And so some like the idea of like maybe you have to loosen up a defense because they're stopping the run. They're keying on the run. They're trying to clog up the middle of the field. They have fast defenders that can, can that can cover sideline to sideline. So Ohio State, even without Urban Meyer, Urban Meyer always wanted to, to attack the edges. Even with Ryan Day, they are you know they're running wide zone. They're throwing some some stuff to the sideline. They're they're running some of those outs that I wrote about a couple weeks ago. They do attack this, the edges, but if you take that away, then you've got to attack deep, and they just haven't really. And as with everything, they haven't because they haven't had to. They're like arguably as good of an offense as any team in the country. But I do think that's an area where, and a game never comes down to, it's never like, okay, it's fourth and 63. You must complete a (laughs) 64-yard pass right here or the game is lost. It's more about schematically and in an attacking way, can you make a defense back off enough so that they can't clog up your stuff when you're facing a really good defense. Well, I feel like when they have hit those two, it's been off play action. It's been earlier in downs. It hasn't been like third and long necessarily. It's been you know hitting Chris Olave over the top after faking a handoff to uh, J.K. Dobbins, that sort of thing. So um, it, it, it's it's hard to compare exactly to last season because the dynamics have changed so much. But I think everybody who covers this team has noticed that if there is one potential – um, thing that wrinkle that you haven't necessarily seen it is that sort of consistent connecting on those deep balls but how much of that is the quarterback and how much of that as you say is also receivers who aren't maybe as top-end talented as last year's group was from the 419 if if Justin Fields was the quarterback uh at Georgia still if, or if Ohio State and Georgia switch quarterbacks you gave Jake Fromm to Ohio State who has a better record or a better chance to win the national championship I would take the team that Justin Fields is on yeah I would take Georgia uh and- I don't agree with that. I think we saw. I, I think we. I, I think part of the problem with the Georgia situation was that I don't think that system fit Justin Fields very well. Like, it, like, like we already talked about. They put him in in running situations only. So other than that, but they, they were, never were trying to play him as a full quarterback, right? So what we're saying. So if they're playing him as a full, but they run a pro style system, 
And they, so they're not using him the way that Justin is getting used here at Ohio State, where like Ryan Day is adapting his system depending on who his quarterback is. Last year it was run, it was pass heavy. Now it's it's a lot more run heavy, where he's only throwing the ball 25 times a game, and it's not a lot of deep threat, deep deep shots like it was with Dwayne Haskins and those type of situations. I think Ryan Day has is more equipped to adapt his system to whoever his quarterback is than Kirby Smart is. So I think because of that, Jake Fromm would succeed more under Ryan Day than Justin Fields would under Kirby Smart. But that's not more that's more on the coaches than it is on the players. But did I misunderstand the question? Weren't they asking if he was at Georgia and Ohio State didn't have him, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that that to me that's the question. Oh, I, it's okay. not it's not Who whether okay. yeah, it's if uh, Georgia with Jake Fromm starting and Justin Fields on the bench and playing small um packages is a bet no, is a, no, is a national is contender. Uh, yeah, is the question we're flipping the two quarterbacks? If or Jake Fromm, if Jake Fromm had transferred to Ohio State instead of Justin Fields, I mean, we okay. can make it whatever we want. I mean, the, the oh, point okay. is, how actually, is in that case, I think I would take Ohio State. I think it's still the more complete team. I misunderstood the I, question. Yeah, so like, yeah, that my point still stands. I, there. I, I think as good as Ohio State is, um, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard, right? Because. Dwayne was a completely different quarterback than Justin Fields is stylistically, and he put up gigantic numbers that last year. But part of the reason he put up gigantic numbers is because he had to because the defense was so bad. Right. They had to put up points. He played into the fourth quarter all the time. Um, what they are doing now, and the one thing is, I mean, Georgia, if George, if Georgia started Justin Fields, Justin Fields would not be dropping back 40 times a game and never running. Like, you would have to adjust – one way or the other. I mean, like, you would have to do something. My, yeah, my the way point, they used him last year was more, wasn't necessarily an indication of what they thought of his talents necessarily. I don't no, think. no, no. My, my point in this is I think despite, because the question is not if, like, if they still had Dwayne Haskins. It's like if you, is Jake Fromm as good as Dwayne Haskins? I I don't know. Like I have some. Like Jake Fromm was throwing some picks in that South Carolina yeah. game. They were like unforgivable. Yeah, you're right. But the style is the same, and you're adding that to a, that a much improved defense. I think the only question mark is because like Jake Fromm isn't the run threat that Justin Fields is. Is J.K. Dobbins still having this dominant of a season when you're not as which about is a him? huge question. That's yeah, a fair that's question. the that's yeah. the question. But if you're giving. It's basically giving a guy like, like a Dwayne Haskins, whether he's as good as him or not, is irrelevant. But the same style of quarterback, a better defense, well, so he doesn't have to throw for four hundred and fifty yards every game because the defense isn't giving up forty five points. I a mean, game. it's 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 basically the question of when you look at Georgia's whole team and Ohio State's whole team, um, how much does the quarterback make a difference? And like, I I guess my point in this, if you think Justin Fields, I think everybody would say, honestly, and it's not a criticism of Georgia. They did what they had to do. It's a tough situation. Again, too much talent. What a great problem to have. Um, Because Ohio State also like lost the guy at quarterback who's going to win the Heisman. So it's like if we're playing the game of like, how could you let that quarterback leave? I mean, you, you can play that game in Columbus too, but like nobody's playing that. Because, you know, what, like, what are you going to do? Nobody is saying, oh, Ohio State should have done something different to somehow keep Joe Burrow when your other options were Dwayne Haskins and now you have Justin Fields. Like, you're fine. Whatever Georgia could have done, I don't know that they could have kept Justin Fields other than, like, giving him the starting quarterback job. Um, or maybe, you know, giving him some indication that coming into this year, like, you are going to have a real, real, real chance to win the starting quarterback job. I just think Justin Fields is that important to what they're doing. 
Like their defense is really good, but and the question is not be good. They would be good. I just think it's very possible because Dwayne would be gone and their and Joe would be gone, and their quarterback would be somebody else. Their quarterback would be. I mean, that's really, I mean, if you think about it, if Justin Fields stays at Georgia, who's Ohio State's starting quarterback this year? Like, it might not be Tate Martell. It might be Jalen Hurts. You know, like, it might be, like, if Ryan Day wasn't exactly sure that Tate could get him over the top, he might have gone and gotten some other transfer quarterback. So, I mean, it might be the, it might be Austin Kendall or somebody, the mm-hmm. Oklahoma guy who's at West Virginia now. Although Austin Kendall's the guy who, like, smack-talked Ohio State before the Oklahoma game in 2016. So, like, I'm not sure that that That'd would be... be... Poet, beautiful poetic justice, though. Yeah, that they would him in here. welcome him in with open arms. <laughs> Thanks for giving us the motivation to beat you in Norman. By the way, do you want to be the starting quarterback? I just think in a world where we see all these teams, all these teams that are legitimate contenders for the national title, have great quarterbacks. And to me... And I don't know if this means I'm coming around on this or not. This is a, this is a, because it becomes a JT Barrett discussion, and we have a JT Barrett question in here too. JT Barrett was really good. JT Barrett wasn't really quite the guy to get you over the top for a national championship. And people at the time theorized that it took, the injury was the best thing that could have happened to them in 2014. Cardale was like the playoff quarterback. He was the the high ceiling guy who could throw deep. I always contended that with the talent they had and the way they were playing with Joey Bosa and Ezekiel Elliott and Devin Smith, that they still could have won. Um, but like JT Barrett in 2016, like clearly wasn't good enough with a great defense, with a great defense, a great un- one of the best secondaries you'll ever see in college football history. They got shut out in the playoff. So to me, this Ohio State team is really, really good. But if you had a quarterback that wasn't getting you over the top, and like, would Jake Fromm get him over the top? I mean, Jake Fromm almost won a national title. Maybe he would. But I think Justin Fields is so important for their chances of winning a national title because he's a dual threat, because he opens up the run game, because you have to respect him in both ways, because he's smart and composed and he's not going to shrink in the spotlight. And when other teams have Joe Burrow and Jalen Hurts and Tua Tonga-Vailoa and Trevor Lawrence and guys who are going to do that, I feel like if Ohio State's quarterback, if you felt like Ohio State's quarterback was a cut below that, and I don't want this to turn into a podcast about Jake Fromm because we don't know, but if they just, if they didn't have Justin Fields and they had Tate Martell or Matthew Baldwin or Austin Kendall and they were... You were just saying all this time, boy, Ohio State's really good. They might be better than everybody else with the whole package. But clearly, of the five or six playoff contenders, Justin Herbert at Oregon, of the six playoff contenders, they have the sixth best quarterback. That would be a position that I would not want to be in if I was Ohio State. Justin Fields, with Justin Fields, you are definitely not in that position. You believe Justin Fields is absolutely as capable of leading this team to a national championship as Justin Herbert or Joe Burrow or Tua Tonga-Bailoa or Jalen Hurts or Trevor Lawrence. And that, to me, really matters. So I'm putting a lot, despite all the great coaching changes, despite the fact that Dwayne was awesome last year. You know, if your option is keep Dwayne here, then maybe fine. Like I think that'd be fine. But man, if it's not Dwayne and it's not Justin and you're not sure who it is, I I just think in this day and age, man, if they didn't have a great quarterback, I would have questions. I think part, like, you're not, like, purposely saying it, but, like, you're you're sort of comparing Jake Fromm to Tate Martell, which is, like... And I don't want it to be about Jake Fromm, because I don't know enough. I mean, I get it. I don't want the... I don't really want it to be about that question if they traded with Georgia's quarterback. It's a question about... 
Is Justin Fields absolutely vital to this team winning a national championship? Yeah. And it's not, and I don't want it to be a Chris Chuganoff question either, because of course, if Justin Fields got hurt, but if they had a different good quarterback, so, would they still have a chance to win the national okay, championship? Okay, yeah, then let's just, let, let's bring, like, you brought up JT Barrett, and there's a JT Barrett question, so let's just use him as the example, because he got to the playoff. I think JT Barrett was, in, in, in sense, was good enough to get you there, but he wasn't good enough to win it. I think. Justin Fields is both is good enough to win it, and the difference is the arm. That's like when you named all those different quarterbacks. Why did Tua beat out Jalen Hurts? The arm. That's the thing. He won a national championship by throwing a major throw for a touchdown that won him a national championship game. Why did Trevor Lawrence beat out Kelly Bryant? His arm. J T Barrett was Ohio State's Kelly Bryant, and Justin Fields is their Trevor Lawrence. The difference is the arm, and so yeah, the running stuff is great, and like that's he's an electric runner. But if without the arm, you're not winning a national championship, and that's what this boils down to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 neither a critique, it's not a criticism of Ohio State, but is a it is a nod to how important in this day and age it is to have like a really high ceiling quarterback, yeah. and Justin Fields. Justin Fields is that, and I and I don't know how many of got of those guys there are in college football, but at the moment it sure looks like if they're six, they're on the six best teams. Yeah, they're either um, that or they're like Jacob Eason, where they're not competing for a national championship, but they're going to be a first or second round draft pick. Right, that's and what it is. Who also was run off of Georgia because yeah. Jake Fromm took his job. So we, I think we said it either on the podcast last week or, or on a video last week, whatever. It's like Chase Young is the best player on this team. Justin Fields is the most valuable player on this yeah. team because we can – and we'll get into some more Chase stuff. There is no update as we record this at 1030 on a Wednesday morning. We don't know anything more than we have known. Um, I think we believe that maybe – maybe we believe that they can win a national championship without Chase Young. It would be more difficult, but – if if you told me you're trying to win the national championship, take one player off this team for the rest of the season, Chase Young or Justin Fields, and we're not anticipating yeah. that that will happen to either of them, I would rather you lose Chase. Yeah. So, I think, I mean, maybe that's an obvious point, but again, it's a nod to... It's a nod to uh, the obvious important of the position, importance of the position, but and also like Larry Johnson's job with that defensive line and as a whole. There's like, more depth there, yeah. But just the reality that Justin Fields is a high ceiling, dual threat player, and when you have that, it changes everything. Dwayne Haskins was a high ceiling, single threat player, and if he had a better defense. I mean, you know what? If, if if they have a better defense or they have a little better red zone execution against Purdue and, and they get in the national championship, if they get into the playoff last year, give me Dwayne Haskins in the playoff. Let's see. Yeah. Give me Dwayne Haskins trying to throw for 475 yards in the playoff. I'm there. I think it could have happened. The way that this offense came together, I mean, it was, it was there the whole year. It wasn't as good against Purdue in 2018. It really didn't gel until the very end, and they had to score 52 to beat Maryland. And then the way they played against Michigan, kept it going against Northwestern, had a really good first half against Washington, then kind of took their foot off the pedal a little bit. But it doesn't have to be dual threat. It has to be high ceiling. So give me, Ju- give me Dwayne Haskins in the playoff, yeah. but give me Justin Fields in the playoff too. All right. Recruiting question based off Justin Fields, and then we will get to uh, some playoff stuff. We will get to the James Laurinaitis interview. We will continue with your questions here on Buckeye Talk from the 440. Does Justin Fields' play this season make you wonder about the future quarterback recruiting? It seems like Jack Miller, who was committed for 2020, 
C.J. Stroud, who has an offer for 2020, and Kyle McCord, who is committed for 2021, all fit the Dwayne Haskins mold as pocket passers who are labeled as pro QB prospects rather than dual threat guys. I understand um, that he's a hard commit to UC, but would someone like an Evan Prater possibly fit this offense better in the future? I actually don't know who Evan Prater is. I apologize for that. Um, Let's focus on the nut here. Again, I think people had a misread on Ryan Day coming into this season because the quarterback was Dwayne Haskins last year, and Ryan Day designed a offense to fit the strengths of that quarterback, which was throw, throw, throw at every level. Do not run. Do not run zone read. Ryan Day has adapted to this. Ryan Day will adapt to anything, but does it make you wonder? First of all, are are Jack Miller, C.J. Stroud, and Kyle McCord at all like Justin Fields, and does it just raise your eyebrow a little bit when you watch the way Justin Fields play on this offense? Why do they maybe not have a Justin Fields-type dude in the pipeline? No, I still think Ryan Day is a throw-throw-throw guy. I think Justin Fields is such a great talent that you had to go get it, regardless of what if, if it messed up. It messed up the quarterback room, but in a situation like we've we've said over and over again, if you're trading two for one and the the one you're trading for is a five star number two player in the country, you do that. And so in this situation, he adapted to the number two player in the country. I wrote like back when Tate Martell transferred. I wrote the story like he's this is still transitioning to pro style a quarterback who's going to sit in the pocket and throw. And Jack Miller's a pro style guy. Kyle McCord's a pro style guy. C.J. Stroud's a pro style guy. <coughs> Stroud can run it if it's necessary, but he'd rather sit back there and use his arm. I think of, of all the three, of the three, Stroud's a better athlete than Dwayne Haskins is. And I don't know if his arm is as great as Dwayne Haskins was after three years in the program, but that's the mold that's going to be at Ohio State's quarterbacks from here on out. Justin Fields is, I, I think Justin Fields is an anomaly, and that's because you got a chance to get a five-star quarterback. You go get the five-star quarterback. You get whatever that five-star quarterback looks like right. because otherwise you're not so sure that your room at the moment, Tate Martell, Matthew Baldwin, can get you over the top. Yeah, and then Justin Fields can throw the bo- football. It's not like he, he's a du- he's dual threat like by list but like I asked him one week when you scramble do you scramble to go take off and make a play or are you scrambling to pass and he said he's I scramble to pass and I watched him that week he scrambles to pass and if nothing is and if it's a man obviously you take off because the cornerbacks aren't looking in zone he's still trying to buy time and sometimes he tries to buy too much time and it ends up with a sack or he throws the ball away so so the the thing of it is and and the the Dual threat and co- and pro style quarterback distinctions, I think, are becoming less valuable yeah. um, as we move along here. Because you know, like there's Lamar Jackson, right now. Lamar mm. Jackson is just unbelievable. Lamar yeah. Jackson is like playing Dan Marino and Michael Barry, Barry Sanders. Like he's <laughs> a running back and he's a quarterback. I know everyone who anyone who thought like, well, he should play a different position. He is that different position, but he's also a quarterback. Yeah. Lamar Jackson is ridiculous. And I think he's going to be good. Like, I, this is not a fluke. They have figured out a way to make this work, and that guy has got it. But, like, when you look at almost everybody else in the NFL who's good right now, it's like, is Patrick Mahomes dual threat or pro style? Is Deshaun Watson dual threat or pro style? Is Carson Wentz dual threat or pro style? Is Baker Mayfield dual threat or pro style? Like, everybody who's good. Maybe I shouldn't throw Baker in there at the moment. Yeah. Everybody, Russell Wilson, is he dual threat or pro style? They are pocket passers who, when stuff breaks down, can can move. Improvise to throw, take off if you need to. They are not running zone read with these guys. 
So the, so the issue is like, I, the, I actually, th- I mean, Justin Fields fits right into mm-hmm. that. Justin Fields fits right into whatever you think the modern NFL quarterback is. In, in evaluating all this Dwayne Haskins stuff last year, the issue was Dwayne Haskins didn't fit it anymore. Right. Dwayne Haskins was such a pro-style, immobile guy that it, it made you had to take that into the evaluation. It was a ding on him. I never thought it was enough of a ding to like not take him. It's like you, he's really good at what he does. You can build your franchise around him. You just have to realize what it is. And he is an old school Peyton Manning, yeah, Dan in, Marino guy. In 2010, that's not a ding. It's like actually, yeah, that's exactly what we want. But in an age where that's what a dual threat quarterback is supposed to be, a guy who really can improvise when things break down. And then pro style is a guy who just sits in the pocket, and every so often he's going to take a sack because, well, he runs like a five-second 40, 40, 40, 40 time. For some reason, dual threat turned into running quarterback. And so that's why Lamar Jackson gets the, oh, maybe he should change the wide receiver or Braxton Miller, a running quarterback who was listed as a dual threat and changed the wide receiver because that's probably what he's going to play in the NFL. But in college, you want your best athlete at quarterback. I, I do think what happened last year, and I think you're making some really good points here because I do think the idea, I, I don't know that most fans would view Justin Fields as an anomaly in the Ryan Day right. quarterback tree. But I but I I agree with you. I think that okay. So here's what happened. Last year was a transition from a coach who absolutely wanted a running quarterback mm-hmm. in Urban Meyer to a throwing quarterback, and so that was a clunky transition. And I asked a million questions about it all year. And Urban Meyer like was sort of gritting his teeth through like, man, this feels weird, but of course we're gonna do it. Of course we have to do it. It's gonna work. But their issue last year was they couldn't figure out how to run the ball with a pro-style quarterback because it was still Urban's system. And they Urban, his whole life, had run the ball in zone read where the tailback run was predicated off the running ability of the quarterback. So that was clunkified last year. So we moved from that, which is Dwayne really – Ryan Day's running it, but it's Dwayne and the Urban Meyer system. Now we're into the Ryan Day system where, because their quarterback is – a threat, they are doing zone read stuff. Mm-hmm. But I do think there, when the next evolution comes, if the next starting quarterback is more of a pocket passer like Dwayne, I think they must and will and be able to run the ball more effectively and seamlessly in that system than they ran the ball in 2018 because they will be running the ball in the Ryan Day version of a pocket passer, not running the ball in the Urban Meyer version of a pocket passer. And that version was RPO stuff that the offensive line couldn't yeah. block. J.K. Dobbins couldn't find holes. They were do- There was a lot of stuff that combined to clunk up the run offense last year. The, the rotation at tailback among them, but also just it was not a seamless transition. I think that like play action NFL style runs that are part of the system and are integrated in the system, you don't have to have a, a run threat. But I think all those guys you mentioned, I don't know that any of them, Stroud, Miller, McCord, are as statuesque as Dwayne. Dwayne really that's why I didn't the stuff at Maryland's like Dwayne ran it's like Dwayne still didn't. You know, Dwayne is not a <laughs> He ran for like forty yards on like fifteen. Like he years. literally ran, but he did not become a threat. I I just think that even Ryan mentioned it this week and I I don't believe it. Like it, nobody at Michigan was like, uh oh, now we gotta defend against the Dwayne Haskins run threat. Yeah. It's like did, no you don't. Did he run or did he plod? Plod. He he glumped. He gal I mean it's not I mean the guys are he he's called. Dan Marino. I mean he could throw for five thousand yards in the NFL. 
He just, I mean, he's going to be, I, th- I still think he's going to be good. We actually have a good Dwayne question that I want to get to. But the point is, I do think, Stephen, you're right on the idea of this being not exactly what the evolution of the Ryan Day offense will look like. Of course, being willing to take, if you get a guy who can move and Justin can move, then, then take it. But I think this is in its own way a transitional year. And we've talked a lot about how much Justin's run ability opens it up for J.K. Because mm-hmm. they still are, you know, J.K., you've got to get J.K. going. And the way J.K. got going and as a freshman was in zone read mm-hmm. with a run threat quarterback. So this fit J.K. They are going to get to a point where they might be more play action NFL kind of stuff. And then when those tailbacks get here, they won't have any memory. They won't know. Oh well, we did zone read yeah. when I was a freshman. It'll just this. This will just be what the Ohio State offense is. And Nate, go ahead. To your point, just for the sake of like the RPO conversation, and Josh Myers, I think is a great example of a guy who never passed blocked until he got here. It'll be interesting to see like as they're recruiting offensive linemen, like when you when you talk to them and you go, hey, how's your pass blocking? How often are you guys throwing the ball? And a lot of these guys in this 2020 class, they're used to throwing the ball. I mean, Paris is is what he is, but there's other guys who are coming from offenses that throw the ball. So they're not going to be coming into Ohio State pass blocking for the first time. Now, obviously, they'll have to develop. But, like, I don't think we're going to see, a, like, many Josh Meyer situations where they're coming from triple option situations where they really have never pass blocked until they got to college. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on Buckeye Talk. We will be back right after this. Nathan is back from his phone call. We're going to get dig into some of the playoff stuff uh, still coming uh, the James Laurinaitis interview will be ahead after that. Thank you for listening to Buckeye Talk. All right, let's get into the playoff situation here on Buckeye Talk. A good question, and Nathan covered this uh, to some degree in a story on Cleveland.com. Make sure every Tuesday night you are reading our immediate coverage of the playoff rankings release on Cleveland.com. A hypothetical scenario from the 303. Let's say that something happens with Chase Young, and he's given a four-game suspension. Ohio State loses to let's say Penn State or maybe to Michigan. But Ohio State wins the Big Ten Championship with Chase back. So let's see. Chase Young is out. It would have to be Michigan in order for them to win the Big Ten Championship. Unless like Penn State then also lost another game. But let's say so they lose a game. He's out for Maryland, Rutgers, Penn State, Michigan. They lose in there, but they still make the Big Ten Championship. Chase is back for the Big Ten Championship, and they win. Does the committee view a one-loss Ohio State differently with Chase on the roster when making their choice between one-loss contenders? That Hey, they did lose, but they lost without him. Now he's back. How would the committee look at that? Well, I asked Rob Mullins last night like how much they considered – Rob Mullins being the, the committee chair, by the way. I asked him you know, how much they take that into consideration, whether a star player being gone, whether it's a – mitigating factor for a team if they win without him or a mitigating factor for a team if they lose but don't have their best player and because you could even factor it into Alabama somewhat although Tua did play in that game so and played pretty well even though he was banged up um he stopped well short of saying that committing himself to how much of a factor it would be he definitely said they watch all the games everybody on the committee watches all the games they have I don't know what sort of special technology he was hinting at that they have where they can watch all games. And they no, well, they get it's like they get like cut ups that so they okay. get like stuff so it's emailed like to them or... during the week where you they can watch a full game in an hour. Okay, okay, People, um, you can find stuff like that on YouTube too. Yeah, that, that stuff is kind of floating out there. Yeah, so um, but so they do watch all the games and they are. I mean, the way he said it was like it's kind of their they are tasked with knowing 
whether or not the best players are in those games. So it's something they're aware of. They knew that Chase Young wasn't playing for Ohio State against Maryland. Because they have eyes and brains. Yes. I mean, so, I hate when they explain that, though. It's like, we are tasked with being right. aware. Like, oh, you mean because, like, you exist in right. the world in America? Well, and it's Yeah, also, we get it. It's easy to say, oh, we know that they – you know that they played without Chase Young. But would they – Everybody in that committee really have noticed during the game that they were playing without Wyatt Davis or if they were playing without Damon Arnett. Like, you know, other starters, other important players, um, would they have known? I, I just, I'll take them on their word, but you never know. So I think it would be something that would potentially be a factor. Like, if it was a tiebreaker, if it was an absolute tiebreaker between them and a one-loss Georgia that also won the SEC championship, although that Georgia team would then have some other pretty impressive wins. So, um, I don't know. I think it could be a factor, but I don't think it would be something that would absolutely necessarily negate the damage that that loss would do to their resume. This has come up, this came up in the mock committee, and it and it's one of these things, again, the thing you realize is, whatever the rules are, whatever it's whatever anyone wants to have in their head, it's 13 people with 13 different versions of this in their head. I would believe, A, you're right, I think it's a tiebreaker. When everything else is super close, it's like, well, their loss came without Chase Young. Also, this was a discussion in the mock committee, because I can't remember what it was that year, but it's a real thing. I do. If I were on the committee, I would differentiate between an injury, which you can't control, and a suspension, yes, that's which you really can control. Yeah. I would ding a team more of like, listen, I'm not going to give you like the benefit of the doubt because someone committed an NCAA violation, and that like like maybe you would have lost to Penn State anyway if he had played, and now somehow the NCAA issue is going to get you in the playoff. Like I'm not doing that. That's a really good point. If you rolled your ankle. When Kelly Bryant got hurt for Clemson in that mm-hmm. game a couple years ago, and everybody sort of forgave the Clemson loss to whoever it was, Wake Forest or or East Tennessee Tech or whatever other teams are in the ACC. I did get a text this week. East Tennessee Tech? I don't know. The teams in the ACC, they all play basketball. Who's good at basketball? Is Coastal Carolina in the ACC? I think Davidson's in the ACC. Somebody who was an ACC fan texted me and said, like, I was ripping the ACC, and I actually didn't get a chance to read the whole text, but but also that would be because I don't care what the people who like the <laughs> ACC think of me. So Did someone pay four ninety nine just to send you a text no, complaining th- that you ripped the ACC? There's a lot of people who go to, like, they might have gone to, like, Ohio State for undergrad and Clemson for grad school okay. or, Cle- or vice versa. Like, gotcha. they have two allegiances, okay. which is fine. But also, like, go listen to the Clemson podcast where I'm sure they're ripping Ohio State. I'm not biased. I just tell it like it is. You don't want to know. If you just are getting used to me now, you don't want to know how I ripped the Big Ten for six years. From 2005 to 2010, Jim Trussell won six straight Big Ten championships, and I acted like he was winning a middle school title because the rest of the Big Ten stunk so bad. So I'm calling out the fact that the ACC stinks, and I can't remember what I was going to say. But that would be a weird tiebreaker, but it would it would not – it would not be the same as an injury. So, like, I would not count on, like, oh, if that happened, it's like, oh, well, Chase was out, so they're in. Because there are people, and I think reasonably, like, it's like, listen, NCAA, like, that's your own mistake. No, I think that's a very fair argument to make. But but in terms of, like, what, again, if you've read any of the stuff that I wrote about the playoff committee stuff, it's like, well, what do, like, the rules say about it? It's like, eh, there's no, you can do no. whatever you want. No. And whether you're supposed to take it into account or not, people have stuff in their head. So it's in their head. They might even express it, and they could, there are things that get expressed that people say, well, you're not supposed to think about that. And it's like, oh, okay. 
let me let me vacuum that out of my brain, but it doesn't get vacuumed out. As Rob Mullen said last night, uh, multiple times, it's an art, not a science. There is not a A, B, C, one, two, three formula that they follow. There are guidelines, but what somebody, the way somebody chooses to apply those guidelines one year or one week, can be very different from the way they do it a week later. 412, starting to become concerned with the SEC bias in the rankings. Georgia has a horrible loss to South Carolina. Alabama played no one, and the LSU game wasn't as close as the score indicated. Uh, it seems like they're, we're going to have a two team, two SEC teams in the playoff regardless, which is disgusting to dismiss the Pac-12, Big 12. Also, LSU has the biggest advantage of all home fields in the championship with the Superdome that the national championship is in New Orleans this year. With Georgia being four, Bama five, right? Was that what it was? Did yes. you feel... And LSU being one, right. did you feel it was a little too SEC friendly? I do. Like, that's a bad loss for Georgia. Like, point blank period, that's a bad loss. And Ohio State had a bad loss last year. Now, obviously, they didn't lose at a field goal at the end of the game, but it's still a bad loss to a team you should not have lost to. And Ohio State was left out. Well, as of right now, Georgia's in with that same – type of bad loss and they haven't really had a, a win that's like that impressive yet that should have them in the top four this early what what are the good georgia wins or what's the explanation i'm sure i, I didn't i didn't get on the call what what did what's the explanation for why georgia's four i can't remember georgia's full resume off the top of my head but they do have two wins over teams in the top 20 so that's florida's one of them and they play auburn this week Trying to think of who the other team is that they've already beaten. Well, look it up. We'll look it up. We're professionals. But like, what did what did they say about it? <laughs> but what that, that was say? it. Like, they thought that they, I think they had two wins over teams in the top twenty on their rankings. Um, they do have the one loss, and it was at home. Uh, it was a close loss, though, and I do think that that is something that the committee is taking into consideration. That it was a game that they could have won just as easily as they ended up did losing. And they missed a the field goal. Not that they're giving them credit. For losing the game, um, but it is different than even though the you know the Purdue and Iowa games are on the road. Those were games where Ohio State got smoked. Um, so I, I understand why people say that. Again, it is it's. But well, they beat Notre Dame too. They're good wins. They did beat Notre Dame. Notre Dame yes. and Florida. Yes, um, I know the Notre Dame game was a home, and I think the Florida game was. Well, that was at the that's in Jacksonville. Okay, okay. So, um, so yeah, so they do have some quality wins. Um, and I think, again, they look at underlying performance, too. They look at the fact that, you know, it's not just all how many points you put up. Georgia's got a really strong defense. It's the kind of metric that is helping Ohio State right now. Again, you were just talking last week about the fact that Ohio State is a Southern team that happens to play in the Big Ten, basically. And I think that Ohio State gets gets credit in a way that now Georgia is also kind of getting credit in the same way because their, their, their underlying performance, when you look beyond the score and you look at the actual out performance inside the games, I think – the same reason that Georgia gets credit is the reason that Ohio State gets the credit it does. But to Stephen's point, in terms of credit within games, they sucked against South Carolina. I don't care that it was double overtime. South Carolina stinks. People are asking if Will Muschamp should get fired. And that team beat Georgia at Georgia. Right. It's insane. I, I kind of don't understand. It. I don't understand actually the argument for Georgia over... Well, even Alabama, frankly, or Oregon. Like, Oregon's won eight games in a row. Their one loss was at Auburn by one score. Um, I know there aren't other great teams in the Pac-12 other than Utah who they have not played yet, but there are still some decent wins on Oregon's resume as far as, like, winning some road games. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily I – I, I, I don't necessarily understand why they put Georgia where they did. 
I don't know that it's SEC bias as much as head up your own butt bias because I just feel – I'm going to like be referencing, well, the time I was on the mock committee, like until I'm 90, I feel like I could go in that room and sway the room because it is insane that you look at a double overtime home loss to a horrible program that might fire his coach as like, well, it was close. That is a worse loss than either the Purdue loss or the Iowa loss. The Purdue loss and the Iowa loss for Ohio State, they were by bigger scores. Those were solid programs that on that day played great. South Carolina did not play great, and they won anyway. Georgia insisted on giving that game to South Carolina. They are being propped up by the Notre Dame win, which is why you play non-conference games. You take a risk, but you earn so much equity by beating a team like Notre Dame. If they had not beaten Notre Dame, or not, not they had not beaten Notre Dame. If they had not played, if they had not played Notre Dame, they would not be there. Now, the issue there's multiple issues here, and and like Ohio State's going to be number one. We'll get to another question here. I have full faith. That if Ohio State wins out, I do think they'll be number one. Because again, LSU's best wins are all behind them, other than the SEC championship game. Ohio State's two best wins in the regular season are still in front of them. So LSU jumped now. Ohio State will jump later. I think... I, I know that... I know that Alabama doesn't have the wins that match Georgia... But their loss is so much better, and I know we go back and forth sometimes, well, what do they value more? Good loss, good win, and it seems like it's good win, except they'll kill you on the losses sometimes. I really thought Alabama would still be four. I don't think Oregon should be four. I really thought Alabama would still be four because they played. I know that they scored an 80-yard touchdown on the last play of the game to make it one score. It was really two scores, but they were around. They were there, and certainly, like, I I just thought Alabama, the the – totality of what they've done and again talking about people are already complaining about the Alabama excuses being set up except I think some of the Alabama excuses are actually a little bit legitimate it's what we talked about two is hurt two is not himself so if you're trying to evaluate who should get in the playoff he wasn't 100% Tua against LSU if he's 100% Tua by the end of the season I think that will factor in in a very different way than a Chase Young suspension factors in and they were still smoking teams even without Tua going into that game and then they lost yes at home but to the team that's number one in the country and maybe has the best offense in the country by most people's estimations i mean um our our pizza pod party crasher ari wasserman last night asked um mullins do you guys even look at the final score like does the final score of a game matter to you and mullins said no that it's more about the performance within that game and that the score doesn't matter again i don't know how as human beings you can completely take that out of your mind but i think one of the games he was probably asking about was you know do you care that it was a five-point game at the end against lsu or do you care that it was whatever 33 to 13 or whatever at halftime and that it really was more of a two-score game before that last touchdown happens he didn't specifically ask that but you can maybe extrapolate that the committee he probably took that into account because I think I was surprised too. I thought Alabama, I think I predicted them four on my little prediction thing Tuesday morning, and I thought there was even a chance they would still just be three. That they would only move Clemson up to four. Because they thought so highly of Alabama's underlying performance through those first eight games that they had them three in the first place. Even though they didn't have a strength of schedule, they had just been pounding teams so much that they saw a performance that merited being ranked that high. And again, part of the idea is Georgia has its best wins in already. Alabama's best regular season win, if they get it, is yet to come because they didn't beat LSU. If they beat Auburn, now Alabama's going to have wins that stack up to the Florida or Notre Dame wins for Georgia. So then you you start that conversation again. Um, 
the hard thing is, and a lot of this, I think you have to key in on the rankings. You have to key in on the rankings that actually might matter later. And, and what are the rankings that are obviously going to shake themselves out? So the question is, like Georgia being ahead of Alabama right now, Alabama is not going to make the SEC title game because they're in the same division as LSU. Mm-hmm. Georgia is going to make the SEC title game. So if Georgia wins the SEC title, of course they would go in right. ahead of anybody else in the SEC. Right. They're in. If Georgia loses the SEC title and now Georgia loses to LSU, which is the one team that also beat Alabama – and now Alabama has, like, is two-loss Georgia? Are you going to put in, like, the loser of the SEC title game with two losses as the fourth team in the playoff? Alabama no. would be the team. Alabama. So it doesn't matter how Georgia and Alabama are rated against each other. If Georgia wins the SEC championship, right. they're going to the playoff. If they don't win the SEC championship and they have two losses, there's no way they're going to the playoff. So question for both of you in this situation, and especially you, Doug, since you were there. You said, are you going to put the team who lost in their conference championship in the in the playoff? So is it actually better to not make the conference championship game than it is to lose it if you want to make the playoff? I mean, if it's, I think it's, if it's your second loss, if you are a one-loss team, I think you would be better off not making a conference championship than losing a conference championship. Now, well, if you're a one-loss team, you probably would rather go to the conference championship because yeah. if you win, you have a chance to elevate yeah, yourself. Yeah, I, I still think that's the way you would have to look at it because you're leaving it up to chance that you are the one-loss team that wins the tiebreaker if you don't go to the championship game. But if you have No, one but loss, it's not about whether you want to go. It's when it's you're the, evaluated after the fact. As a committee member, right. if well, you look at Alabama and Georgia and you think they're super-duper similar and Alabama's one loss and didn't get there and Georgia's their second loss was in the championship game, I just think most committee members would still ding you for the second loss, oh, even yeah. though you got the chance to lose by reaching a game that Alabama didn't get to. Until we see a scenario where a two-loss team gets in, we have to kind of operate under the assumption that a second loss eliminates you. And the idea, I mean, can you get in? Could Ohio State, I mean, I mean, it's the way rabbit hole, playoff hypothetical rabbit holes are fun. So if you're undefeated, if Ohio State and Minnesota are undefeated combatants in the Big Ten championship game and Ohio State goes in at number one and Minnesota goes in at number five and Minnesota wins and Minnesota, undefeated Minnesota, is clearly getting in the playoff then as the Big Ten champion, could one loss Ohio State still make the playoff? Yes, yes, I think they could. A team that's undefeated and ranked number one in your scenario in the championship Losing to another undefeated team that's on the cusp of being in the final four doesn't fall out of the way all the way out of the final four. So the losing in the conference championship is just more if it's your second loss. I think so. Yes. And for instance, I mean, it doesn't mean well, it depends on where you're ranked too. But like if Minnesota was fourth in that scenario and Ohio State crushes them, that maybe one loss. Maybe oh does yeah, no, they, they'd Minnesota be out. Oh, yeah, it's especially like if you're number one and you lose. I can't remember where they were ranked. Michigan State and Iowa played an undefeated Big Ten championship game in 2015. Mm-hmm. Michigan State barely beat them. Michigan State finished third. Iowa finished fifth. Right. So that's how close to Iowa was. Iowa was to making the national championship as, you know, a, a loser in the Big Ten championship game. Are making the playoff, I mean. Not a Justin Fields question, but considering... And we're getting off the playoff here for a little bit. Oh, I want to get this one first from Jordan in the 937. If Ohio State wins 93 to nothing against Rutgers, can we assume Ryan Day listens to Buckeye talk and wasn't thrilled with your preseason prediction? Just joking. Not trolling. That's pretty funny. I will say, I mean, again, 
I basically told Ryan Day in the spring, I think you're going to lose some games because it's crazy to me to expect a team with a first-year quarterback and a first-year head coach to like go undefeated. Anybody who's predicting that, that is a ridiculous standard to put on a team in your situation. And he didn't punch me in the neck. He kind he of agreed with you a little bit. He didn't scream me out of the room. Right. Like, again, coaches kind of like being underestimated in their first year. If every single person in the world had been like, well, Ryan Day, national championship or bust. If you go 11-1, and one, here comes the hot seat. I mean, that's insane. So they're better than I thought. But, like, Ryan Day thought the offense might be a little clunky in the first six games. Ryan, I mean, he was a complete – and not unreasonably. Justin Fields took control of the offense in a way that I don't think anybody could have automatically expected. And that is not like – if it was like a, it wasn't even a criticism. If that was like an evaluation of Justin Fields beforehand, it's like, dude, you got this a lot faster than I thought. Like props. So like that's I just a new offense and just getting here. And I know we had spring football, but that's like a long. Everyone talked about how difficult the Ryan Day offense is to learn. And like, man, guy got it like that. Not a Justin Fields question from the two four eight. But considering just how good both the offense and the defense are, who wins a seven-possession series? The first-team offense or the first-team defense? This is Kyle from Troy, Michigan, with the first-time text. Love the pod and love the articles you guys put up. The somebody else, the somebody else had asked this too. Like, play, play that game. Which who wins? If how, you think who won in the spring? The defense won in the spring when they were actually keeping. They didn't keep score over the in the fall, in fall camp. They said they don't keep score then. But in the spring, when we actually got to watch that full scrimmage, the defense won. Yeah, I mean, does this defense have Chase Young? Because if yeah, so, it has Chase Young. Yeah, so I'm I'm taking the defense. Like no doubt about it. Would you guys both take the defense? Like no doubt about it. Yeah, I think so. Why? Because the defense has. Created offense. Multiple great players in a way that the offense – multiple disruptive players, I think, in a way that the offense doesn't necessarily. I mean, the combination of, of Chase Young and, and Jeff Okuda taking away half of the field, um, I, I just I, – I would take the defense. Their defense is creating a lot of their offense. Yeah, but I just – like, who's better? Who's better, offense versus defense? Okay, so I'm not – I'm taking the defense. Yeah, I'm taking defense. And I would take the defense, too. I just wanted to make you guys explain it. Uh, <laughs> I feel like the defense, you, there, there's been times this season where for maybe a quarter or a half, the offense kind of flickers out, but the defense is consistently smothering everybody. Yeah. The I don't know that they could block Chase Young. Right. And I don't know that these, rec- these receivers could shake the corners. Consistently. And that's sort of what I, you know, I, I've been saying a lot lately. The receivers are good. They're not great. And it's like, Chris Olave is really good. If you said, like, Jeff Okuda, follow Chris Olave around. I'm not sure Chris Olave is doing much. Yeah. You know? Like, you put Sean Wade on KJ Hill and said, okay, mm-hmm. good luck, KJ. I mean, KJ is really good. Ah, that gets a little rough. Now, you know, you try to run up in the middle a little bit, I think you'd lean on JK, right? I mean, I think yeah. you'd lean into the run a little bit, try and test the defensive tackles, although Davon Hamilton's playing really well. Davon Hamilton's playing really well. Yeah. Um, Try to get something on the linebackers. Maybe try to work the tight ends a little bit more over the middle of the field. But I don't know that I don't know that a lot would be open in the pass game, and I don't know that Justin Fields would have a lot of time. They couldn't block it. They don't have an all Big Ten tackle. 
I mean, Thayer Munford's good. He's not going to be first-team All-Big Ten. I don't think so, no. It's not like Thayer Munford is it's not like the best tackle that Chase Young has faced this year. That's not a criticism of Thayer Munford. But there have been times where it's like, well, Joey Bosa's get, going against Taylor Decker. And it's like, okay, well, Joey Bosa's the third pick in the draft, and Taylor Decker was like the 19th pick in the draft. Mm-hmm. Like, they also they have the best pass rusher and the best tackle. They don't have the best tackle right now. The guy from Iowa's awesome. Uh, I think some of the Wisconsin guys are pretty yeah. good. I, you know, whatever. I'm not going to pretend and I know the, like, the, the guys from Wisconsin are pretty good, and you see what Chase did to those tackles. Yeah, so so, so I take Chase. I take Chase. <laughs> yeah. I take Chase. Nathan's given like, the, given, like, the wise old men, like, like just thinking about you're like, I just saw you envision Chase Young pass rushing against the Ohio State offensive line in your head. This is a good one. If you're Ohio State and you have to play Clemson one way or another to achieve the ultimate goal, would you rather get them in the semifinals with a month to prep or in the championship game with like 12 days to prep? And I think this is an interesting scenario because if I had to guess right now, my two guesses on – who are your two guesses on the two teams Ohio State will have to play to win the national championship? Clemson and LSU. Clemson and LSU. So, like, which order would you want them in? I, I would want Clemson with the month to prepare. I yeah. think Clemson is the tougher matchup. Like it's the comp. Like Joe Burrow has been great this year, but Trevor Lawrence is just as good. Uh, he's an NFL talent in his own right, and Clemson's receiving core is so much better. And Clemson and plays defense. LSU is not a really strong defense, but Clemson yeah. is a legitimately strong defense. But that'll really be the first time this secondary is, is tested this year, like consistently. And like I think I would want a month of like Jeff Okuda, Sean Wade, Jordan Fuller, and Damon Arnett studying that team and watching what T. Higgins and Justin Ross and those guys do. If they play LSU and Clemson, like, we are going to have so much to write. Like, it is going to be so fun. Because no matter which order it's in, it's awesome. Because you get the number one, yeah. the top two players from a draft class, or you get Ohio State's former quarterback and Ohio State's current quarterback. Well, now here's a wrinkle, though. The LSU game would then be in New Orleans. Does that factor into... I, I, I don't know. I mean, Ohio State fans travel, and, yeah. and you split up the stuff, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, LSU fans are going to be excited, because LSU... I mean, if, if LSU wins. That, it's, not a, it's not an unreasonable thing to think about. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's in their backyard. Right. Um, it the, doesn't really matter oh, where you play Clemson. So awesome. the, and the thing to think about... You think it's going to be what? I said it doesn't really matter where you play Clemson. Phoenix or Atlanta, I don't think yeah. that makes a big difference. I mean, if I had to guess right now, I'm still guessing. And my, and my playoff prediction, I don't think I would change it based off the rankings, was Ohio State 1, Bama 4 in Phoenix, LSU, Clemson, and Atlanta at the moment um, would still be my guess. So uh, that's actually the opposite of what we just said, who are the two teams you're going to have to play. Because if yeah. they're 1, then I think Clemson and LSU are the 2-3 game. I mean, that is the one thing about – don't we think in the end the top three teams in the ranking are going to be Ohio State, Clemson, and LSU? I do. If, things, yeah. if they don't lose, there's no doubt about it. Right. So then if you're number 1, you're playing to not have to play one of those other teams. So, so right? basically it's like the SEC championship game and the Big Ten championship game. Who's more impressive? That's going to be, they're going to be the number 1 seed. I mean, it might come down to that. I mean, like we like, saw how much Ohio State moved the needle, winning fifty nine nothing over Wisconsin yeah. to get in. It could come down to that. That again, Ohio State had these two impressive wins against Penn State and Michigan. But if LSU beats, you know, Georgia, if Georgia stays on the same track and Minnesota stays yeah. on the same track, even if Minnesota's undefeated, Georgia's going to be higher ranked than Minnesota. Right. Not enough to make a huge difference, but it definitely could be. The Big Ten championship game might be like one versus six, and the SEC championship game might be like. Two versus four, and you're asked, and then you're asking, okay, which team? One, which team does the committee think is better between Minnesota and Georgia? But also, who just looks better in that? In I that really, it could game? be you could be eye testing it, yeah. and it's like you're eye testing to avoid Clemson in the semis. So, but yeah, you got to win by eighty points, and then you're you're trying to figure out whether it's going to be Alabama 
or Oregon or Oklahoma yeah. in the in the four spot for the number one seed. All right, let's take another quick break on Buckeye Talk. When we come back, I'll be talking with James Laurinaitis as he gets ready to call Ohio State versus Rutgers on Saturday in East Piscataway. Joined now on Buckeye Talk by one of my favorite guys that I've covered in below my many years on the Ohio State beat, James Laurinaitis, media maven, host on a 97.1 The Fan, Big Ten Network. He's everywhere. He's doing this game, Rutgers-Ohio State, on Saturday in New Jersey. James, thanks for joining the show, man. Uh, thanks for having me, buddy. James Laurinaitis, when you prep to do a game like this, I'm always curious, like, what is prep like? How do you – you have multiple things that you're doing in your life. You're also a father and a husband. You have things going on. How much film do you try to watch of these teams? How much do you have to do to make sure you know everybody's names and how they're pronounced? What's your week going to be like as you prep to do Ohio State Rutgers for the Big Ten Network? Yeah, so, you know, this week's probably a little easier because you get to cover one of your one of the teams uh, on the daily uh, with local radio. But usually what I would do is I we talk to the road coaches on a Wednesday in the afternoon. And so I like to be prepared for that team first. I want to be able to watch probably the last three games that those team, that team has played to get an understanding of, okay, who do I feel with my eyes? You can read so much about how a team did, right. And how a player did, but you never know if there's a snap in the game where, well, gosh, this whole day game is different if the kid makes the catch, right? Or this kid played really well, but he didn't show up in the in the article because they lost, you know, by two touchdowns. So I try to find with my own eyes and trust my gut on what I see and who good players are, not just kind of uh, read, you know, the the weekly stories. Although you you still read them because you want to find out more about the actual people playing. Uh, and then you know, once you do the Wednesday call with the road coaches then you kind of jump in a little bit with the the home team and you meet with that team on a Friday and um, I get a board made up there's a guy Tony Britt does a lot of boards which is a giant 11 by 17 piece where on the bottom it's you know offense on the top it's the defense depth charts and it's kind of spaced out like an offense or a defensive formation and there's stats everywhere but you fill in your own information about each individual player and so sometimes you can get them on teams game notes (laughs) if they're good at it uh, if you have a good SID and they fill out, you know, a couple of nuggets about each player's season so far, maybe career notes that could be helpful. Or sometimes you got to go to the old, uh, the old team website and, and dig through their bios to try to figure it out. And you know, it's funny when you do teams. You know, like for instance, if Rutgers have a, has a four-star recruit, or if they have a kid who you know has high school notoriety somewhere, you know, you put that on the board. But you do a team like Ohio State, it's a little different because being a five-star kid isn't, isn't news, <laughs> you know what I mean, coming to Columbus. It's just, it is what it is. Um, so this game also will be a little more difficult, Doug, because you got you have the expectation that you're going to see a lot more depth with Ohio State than normal. So instead of just filling out the starters and then maybe one thing on a backup here or there who's rotated, you're going to have to kind of know, um, gosh, the whole roster and have a good idea. Because the ultimate thing is, is you don't want to ever say someone's name wrong and you also, when you have a fan base watching, like, for instance, if you're watching this game Saturday, I'm not naive. I know that if you're watching, you're a diehard Buckeye fan or else you're a diehard Scarlet Knight fan. And so you want to give those kids their proper respect. If they do get, gosh, just four snaps, you don't know if those are the only four snaps they see this year. So you better have their name right. And you better know a little bit about their story. James, this does seem like a, a difficult game potentially 
to call because I think we all have an expectation of how this game's going to go. I think Ohio State's a 51 or 50 point favorite at this point. When you're doing a college game like this and when you were a college athlete yourself, how are you going to try to balance, you know, giving good, solid critiques of like, hey, maybe this is a, a place where. Um, you know, Rutgers could do this better. This is how they could improve versus understanding, you know, these are 19 and 20 year old kids who are probably going to come out and just be overmatched. And, you know, there are some guys out there maybe in spots being put in spots they shouldn't be put in. How, How do you think you'll try to balance this? Because it's not the NFL. It is an NFL game. And we are potentially looking at a really lopsided game. Yeah, that's the most difficult part because, you know, the challenge in the open is always you're trying to figure out how do we make sure the viewer stays around? Like, how can we sell the game, right? Like, if you're not a diehard fan of either one and you're just watching uh, the game before on BTN, how do we convince them to stick around? Um, that's going to be the, the storyline that kind of unfolds. We'll see what happens throughout the week. There's a lot of smoke about Shiano um, and Rutgers being on, you know, the so to speak, one-yard line and just need to cross the goal line as far as taking, you know, this – this job. So that would be interesting, obviously, with the ties back to Ohio State, if they're able to get that done and announced. And gosh, if he's there and on site, you know, for it, it'd be interesting. Um, you know, you, I think one, in these games, when they become uh, non-competitive in the second quarter, uh, kind of like last week's was with, with Maryland, you, you tend to go more big picture. Um, you'll go big picture. How, how would Greg Schiano um, rebuild Rutgers? What are the main things that he would need to do? Um, and you can kind of speak about how, you know, they, they understand there, I think, as a, as a university that they aren't going to keep guys like Saquon Barkley and Jonathan Taylor, who are from there, um, going to Rutgers. But they have been losing recruits to Temple, to Boston College, to other schools that they feel back in the day they weren't losing those guys to. So it's, it's, a, it's a hard build. We know that being in the Big Ten East is just, uh, I think if you look at the whole giant picture, you probably get a headache if you're a Scarlet Knight fan or supporter. But you have to kind of go one little thing at a time, and you try to take these little wins off the field. And, um, so you try to go big picture there, obviously, with Ohio State, and then you can talk about whatever's happening around the conference. Um, you know, there, there's a whole bunch. We can look ahead to, to the Penn State game. Um, you kind of go, it turns into a studio show at that point. You want to, you know, you want to talk and and analyze the important plays, right? Um, Maybe the big plays, stuff like that, um, and give them the proper due, proper due. But, you know, it's kind of one of those things that uh, it turns into a studio show pretty quick. James, I think you're as qualified to provide that kind of big picture analysis, I think, of Ohio State in a situation like this as anybody, because as I'm watching this team, you know, it is reminding me a little bit of what you guys did in 2006 when you're a wire to wire number one. And obviously, Ohio State wasn't number one to start the season, but you guys were were rolling teams most weeks. I'm, I'm refreshing myself on the schedule from 2006. You had the 17-10 game um, in week 10 late that year as you were, you know, but weeks leading up to that, you won 44 nothing, 44-3, 38-7, Are Are you feeling reminded at all, at all of a dominant Ohio State team that seems week to week to be going out and taking care of business? Or do you feel like it reminds you of your sophomore season in 06 at all? It does, except I think that this team's better. Um, you know, the, the feel of like how they're taking care of business and one side of me says, gosh, we were putting up those numbers with, you know, with, an, with what you, you would consider 
I mean, we were doing some spread concepts, right? But you just kind of think like, I would, I would argue the offensive thinking wasn't the same as it is now, right? <laughs> it Correct. Isn't what it is now offensively. So putting out those points under Coach Trussell uh, was impressed. Talk about the year that Troy had, which was, which was unbelievable that year. Uh, and if you think about, gosh, what, what could have Troy done in one of these offenses, and what could he have done as far as you know the RPO type stuff and letting him throw the ball as many times as Dwayne did. And I think, gosh not to go too off subject, but imagine if what Justin Fields numbers would be if he had to play into the fourth quarter of these oh, games. Right. Um, you know, like Dwayne put up, like I was thinking about like, why doesn't anyone get big 10 player of the week for us? And it's because we're only playing a half. So the stats right. aren't good enough, you know? And so Dwayne won so many last year because our defense made him play four quarters. Uh, but I think this team is better. Yeah, I think they're so, they're so balanced at every single level. Um, you know, in every single position room, and they have a hunger about them. We did too. Um, we had a hunger about us, but it just when you look nationally, they've recruited. Um, their depth is better than ours, um, and that was evident. We couldn't afford to lose Teddy in the title game, and I'm, I think Florida probably still beats us if he plays, but that really shook our whole offensive game plan. Um, where now, you know, you're not dependent on one big time wideout or a couple of them. You, none of our wideouts right now are in the top. 10 big 10 stats, but does that matter? I don't think anyone's arguing who has the best, you know, room in the, in the big 10 as far as talent. So they're so balanced. Ryan's game planning and his scheming is so brilliant. Even when two teams do start, you know, early Michigan state, uh, early Wisconsin teams feel like they're, you know, trying to punch us back. He adjusts and then it kind of just walks away with it. So it's been really fun to watch, but it does bring back memories of 06. James, I'm always curious about this because, you know, when you're covering a team that's this rolling the way Ohio State is, I think there is a natural tendency sometimes by some people to start, you know, to start writing about, oh, is this a bad thing? It's too easy. Are they going to get lackadaisical or whatever? What, you were on such good teams here. I mean, every... Usually people lose sometimes, right? I mean, it is very hard to win every week. It just so happens at oh, Ohio yeah. at Ohio State. Ohio State usually does win every week. So I think sometimes whenever Ohio State loses, we're searching for answers. And there are reasons. But I do think sometimes the reason is nobody wins every week. You know, so sometimes losses just happen. Did you ever feel like in your career, though, that when Ohio State was rolling, did you ever feel it that like, hey, maybe maybe we're losing our edge. Maybe this is too easy. Maybe we need to be pushed or really, truly, when you have a good, talented, well-coached team, do you just go out and take care of business and, and, and you don't lose that edge and, you know, maybe you lose, but you just lose because you lose. I, I'm always curious about that. If that's a real thing, that a great team like this one could somehow look ahead when it just is so clear that they have such great talent. Yeah. You know, I think, I think um, what this team has going for them is that all those, you know, leaders on defense were told how bad they were a year ago. So that keeps their edge all year. They seem just angry. JK seems angry when he runs it. There is a feeling like every time we walked down the field in 06, there was no part of me that ever thought with Troy at quarterback that we could ever lose a football game. I just couldn't see it. And that didn't mean that we relaxed. It just meant let's go out there and take care of business. And we had a great dynamic where it didn't matter who you were playing. If you wanted to get embarrassed in the film room, uh, play lackluster against an inferior team and let Luke Fickle r- you know, rip into you. You know what I mean? He was so good at making sure we were – it didn't matter if it was practice. The, the grading of Luke on us, um, and, and that's really what motivated me a lot of times, was I didn't want my peers to hear 
Luke Fickle yelling at me like I wasn't taking this week seriously or questioning my heart and my focus. No way. Because then, then I felt that would start to chip at credibility with my teammates. So I wanted to be the guy to be, um, you know, if everyone thought we were, you know, taking it easy, I was studying more, you know, just because I was afraid of, of Luke's wrath <laughs> a lot of times in that situation. Uh, I think this team has such a focus about it. Um, and, and it's it's impressive to watch because they're they're so talented. But when you match that effort and the talent level and, and the work ethic all together in one pile, they just – you're wondering, where is it going to stop? Right Now, I do wish that they had had a four-quarter game to this point because I feel like there needs to be a – there needs to be a moment in the season to where you look up and you're like, okay, like we, we need a drive here, right? Like, And that's the one thing. Like you don't want the first time that Justin Fields – needs to make a 10-point comeback or, uh, you know, he's down four in the fourth quarter, you know, that first time that happens is what, playing Clemson and Glendale? You know what right. I mean? You want to be able to right. see it versus – you would like to see it against a serious talent. Now, obviously, you don't want to see them struggle against, you know, uh, gosh, any team, you know, name them. But if it's Penn State and Penn State has the lead in the third quarter and we're down, you know, 10 or down seven, which I don't foresee happening, but at least you know you've seen it with your own eyes how your quarterback reacts to when he doesn't have the, the lead late in the game. And we don't know what that will look like. Everything tells me that both Ryan and Justin would be extremely poised because that's just their character. But uh, I think even talking to, to Coach Day preseason some, you know, I think he expected early on to have some tighter battles in the season. I think a lot of people, including him, thought Cincinnati would punch him in the mouth a little bit. How would they react? And <laughs> give them credit because they've just – they've gone out, they've taken care of business, they've acted accordingly. But – um, look, it's it's kind of that double-edged sword, right? It's not a terrible thing that they're just rolling through everybody, but you would like to kind of have some sense as a fan or as a coach how your team would react being down in the fourth quarter. James, with your, your knowledge of the entire Big Ten, and, and again, it's not about taking things for granted, but it's just about, you know, a, a, an honest analysis of where things stand right now. When you look at Penn State or Michigan, or if it winds up being Minnesota in the Big Ten championship game, and clearly Minnesota has that inside track if they don't uh, lose two of their final three. Do, do you see a team that when you you know when you look at strength versus strength and offense versus defense, and you know that that has something that could challenge Ohio State? Maybe Minnesota's passing game, maybe maybe something that somebody got, does you know, defensively that, that might make it a little more difficult on Justin Fields. Is there somebody in the Big Ten that can push Ohio State, or is it more like if Ohio State plays its best, they really should not have much trouble the rest of this conference season? Yeah, I think, I think Doug, if both teams, whoever they play, play their best the rest of the way, Ohio State will win every game. Um, if they play, if for instance, you know, Penn State and Ohio State play the best they've played all season, I think Ohio State wins. Um, and same for everybody, whoever they're going to play the rest of the way out. Um, now, there are certain matchups to where, you know, when I look at Penn State, I say, okay, Gross Matos and Shaka Tony and Micah Parsons and the way that Brent Pry blitzes a ton, he lives and dies by it. He got exposed with some big plays against Minnesota. Um, but, you know, gosh, we've seen the last few years, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, what they upset us on a blocked field goal, then they have the lead in Columbus. Um, JT has his best game of his life, you know, coming back against Penn State, and then they have us down in Happy Valley. So, I mean, they've played us pretty well. I think they have a sort of belief about them when they play us. But, again, if we play our best, 
Um, can their whole secondary, if they struggle with Minnesota's receivers who are good, can they really, uh, uh, you know, slow us down with our scheme? Um, I don't think so. Um, the game, uh, you know, again, that's I don't see their offense really moving the ball at all on us, if I'm honest. Um, I don't I don't think there's anything there to be worried about, and, and it sounds it sounds almost blasphemous coming out of your mouth when you're talking about the rivalry and um, not worrying about a matchup at all. It still doesn't doesn't kind of feel right or sit right with me. And then, um, yeah, Minnesota has really talented wideouts, and I think they have a group of running backs, um, you know, that are playing playing well. But their defense, those are the kind of games that Minnesota wins, you know. So their defense, do you want to get in a shootout with Ohio State? You know, if that's the way it's going to be, I don't see our defense allowing a, a shootout, so to speak. So they, they've, although Minnesota has good wide receivers, and they do Tyler Johnson's an NFL guy, I think Rashad Bateman in as well. Uh, Otman Bell uh, is another, you know, highly recruited guy there. I think that they have guys, but Doug, you know this, we have three NFL corners right now, uh, yeah. four really, excuse me, the whole secondary is going to be playing on Sunday. So, and, and the hopes of getting Chase Young back and, and obviously Hamilton's played great. Tyreek Smith is just the next man up on the Rushman. Um, so again, I think if we play our best and the other team, whoever it is, plays their best in our conference, we're going to win. Man, to hear you talk about the Gophers, you know, there's a world, there's an alternate universe where I could be talking to uh, Minnesota legendary football player and Gopher alum James Laurinaitis <laughs> right now, baby. They would have loved to keep you home, man. You you still have a, you, you got a little bit for the Gophers in your heart growing up in Minnesota? Well, of course I do. I you know I watched I watched that you know they're playing it all week on BTN. The upset over number two and like Lavar Arrington, Nystrom makes that kick. Um, I remember watching that live with my mom in, in our family room, uh, you know, and kind of the feeling of, oh, crap, gosh, we beat Penn State, you know. And and it's funny, you know, you heard P.J. Fleck address the media after the game and said he could feel the whole state of Minnesota and their whole collective here we go again kind of feel when Penn State was driving late in that game because that's the way we were all raised. It's like don't get too attached to the Vikings or the Gophers. They're going to break your heart. You know what I mean? Like you're I remember the 98-15-1 uh, Viking season to where Gary Anderson doesn't miss a kick all year, then misses one of the play. That's in the attitude of people there is like, oh, of course it happened to us. That's why the mini miracle was so crazy because that never happens to Vikings fans. They had it go good for you. Um, so I was thinking that. I was one of those fans thinking like, oh, yeah, they're going to blow it. <laughs> and even, like I remember being in a high school playoff game when um, I think they had a 17-point lead up on Michigan in the Metrodome back in like 04 and Michigan scores like 28 unanswered in the fourth quarter or something like that to beat it. It's some crazy like comeback. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, the Gophers. That's what happened. But, yeah, I mean, of course there's a side of you that would be like and, – and I was talking about today on the show, with, with the proximity to a major airport, if Minnesota can just get back-to-back seasons to where they can get to Indy, you have to wonder, is that one of the easiest places to re- – not like recruiting for history, no, but like recruiting for like actual location. To get in and out of Minneapolis, which is a huge hub, you can fly from anywhere and get to Minneapolis. It's got it's hard to fly into Omaha and then drive to Lincoln. It's hard to get to, you know, West Lafayette and the Champagne and a lot. So I think that there there's something there that if PJ can sustain it, uh, but it's interesting. It's interesting. We'll see. We'll see where this all goes. I've always thought that James. I mean, Minneapolis is a great city, and if you have any kind of kid who who maybe wants to go to college in an urban environment and he's being recruited, recruited to go to West Lafayette and East Lansing and Champaign and yep. school, places like that, and then he has a chance to go to Minneapolis, 
you should be able to sell that. I mean, there's a lot of kids. I think kids like coming to Ohio State sometimes because it's a little more of a, of a city environment. Oh, yeah. and there, there's stuff going on. Minnesota should be able to sell that if they get the right guy in there. And again, maybe PJ, if he sticks around, is that guy. And the off and the real life Wednesday type stuff that we do so great in Columbus and Ohio State and the internships, they have a lot of Fortune 500 companies. Talk about Target and Best Buy and 3M. Like you can you can have guys for their off the field vision. There's a lot of companies there that they need to really start taking advantage of um, and promoting. And maybe they already do. I'm just not around them, you know, as much. Uh, it is crazy. It's funny though though to watch. I, I remember PJ Fleck uh, being a young you know, um, quality control guy at Ohio State in 06, just talking trash to all of us linebackers. Because he was fresh, you know, done playing himself, uh, thought he could still run a clean route. And I remember him talking trash to us all the time in practice. And to see his coaching climb, um, it's, it's, been, it's been interesting, you know, because he's, he's a little bit – he's a ball of energy, but he's uh, – obviously he's having a lot of success. But, yeah, they should be able to recruit there. They really should. They have the big city – uh, just got to make sure those officials are in September. That's, That's all you right. got to do. That's right. That's right. <laughs> La- last one. Last one, James, and I'll let you go. This has been the story of the season for Ohio State thus far. But from your perspective, as a as an all-time Ohio State defensive great, it, it is staggering from the outside just to, to acknowledge this defense this year and that defense last year with so many of the same players. It, it, have you ever seen in your football experience – a team shift so drastically on the defensive side of the ball just from a couple coaching changes, from a scheme change like this, that it's not all new players, it's the same guy. It's stunning to me, and it's an obvious question, but you could answer it better than anybody, that really just you put these guys in a little bit different position and they go from giving up 50 to Maryland to to looking like they could shut out two-thirds of the teams on their schedule. Yeah, it's amazing. Um this, this drastic of an improvement, I, I don't think I would expected it at all. Um, it just shows you, and I know Coach Day's done a, a phenomenal job of saying it's more than just, you know, scheme and, and as you know, the, the fabric of the coaching tree and all that. It's it's a sensitive deal, so coaches are never going to be totally forthright. I think it's it's a combination of the, the scheme last year put a lot of guys at a disadvantage as far as their reads. Truly, they did try to do so much which you can do with NFL guys because in the NFL, if you don't get it, guess what? You get fired, right? You, you move on and you try to find somebody who can handle all that complexity. Uh, but when you look at some of the the defenses that just play simple simple concepts, but they play fast and make things look all the same, and a lot of the rules are, and, and the fits are the same for linebackers, and it can get it can sound really complicated, but it's not. You know, I was talking to Coach Hasley about it, and he's like, you know, our main goal was to make sure that everything was as easy as possible on the linebackers because you felt like those guys have the hardest jobs, right? You have to be able to run and, and tackle in space on wideouts and really athletic backs, but yet you also have to thump against guys like Wisconsin and Iowa and the big boys. So how do you play schemes to where when all these motions and shifts and the RPOs and the zone reads and all this stuff that gets thrown at you, how do you make sure that when people move, you don't have your linebackers shuffling? Because if one guy thinks he has one gap and another guy thinks he has another and they're not supposed to move and they do, well, you can see how that gets confusing, right, when everyone's shifting and motioning. So they're trying to make it really simple on the guys in the box, but yet be able to do multiple stuff out of it. So when the quarterback looks at them, they just can't figure it out either. Um, they've done a tremendous job, and I think everyone's confidence too. They did, they did a lot of work in the offseason about building these guys up 
uh, making sure guys like Jeff Okuda knew that he was a top five player, you know, in the NFL draft, knew that he was that kind of guy because you, you've kind of expected this from him since he got here. And you wonder why hasn't his confidence been up at this point. Uh, and then just experience maturity. It's impressive, you know, that a guy like Chase Young, Chase Young, to everybody, like you know this, from day one he was in, he was a top five pick. People right. saw him and were like, oh, gosh, he's going to get drafted. But the fact that knowing this was going to be probably his last year in college football, he didn't take the Clowney route, right, where Jadavion Clowney had the hit against Michigan and then basically, for lack of better words, shut it down. You know, he played, but he went through the motions, you know, at South Carolina and didn't really have a dominant statistical season. Chase Young said, I'm going to work with Larry Johnson, make sure that my technique gets a lot better. I'm not just going to win on pure speed and athletic rushes. I'm going to work counter moves. I'm going to do a bunch of different stuff, kind of challenge myself to get better, shows his work ethic. Everyone's just kind of grown, and it's been such an amazing, fun turnaround to see the bullets back, and um, and now, I mean, you're at a point where, where you expect, you know, if teams can get any big plays on you, you're kind of shocked at it. And do they have things to correct? Of course they do, right? I mean, everyone does. No one plays a perfect game, but it's been a fun, fun thing to watch. James Laurinaitis will be on the call Saturday. Listen, if you guys have listened to this podcast interview, stick around for the whole fourth quarter. For all four quarters, no matter what the score is, because James will be dropping knowledge all day. Ohio State versus Rutgers on the Big Ten Network. James, we appreciate you. Thanks so much for your time on Buckeye Talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, that was an hour and 35 minutes of podcasting. And if this was a normal podcast, we'd probably be done. We'd probably say, you know what? There's a lot going on. We're getting ready for Penn State and Michigan week. We covered a lot of ground. What happened is that we were in our office in downtown Columbus on Wednesday morning, but we kind of had to get out of there. Nathan was talking to Larry Johnson at noon for a story that he's working on for next week. Uh, he had a phone call in the middle of the podcast that you might have noticed. He was gone there for a moment. That's for another story he's working on. Steven has a basketball game, Ohio State versus, versus Villanova tonight. That's a big deal. We're going to talk to Gene Smith tonight um, before the player interviews Wednesday evening. we got a lot going on. I had an interview with... Uh, the son of the owners of the Pittsburgh Steelers for something I'm writing before the Browns game. I like it when we get busy. I like these busy feelings of like, we're so busy, we're going in a million different directions, it's hard to get the three of us together for two hours. So we couldn't do it. We couldn't fit everything in. So now I'm back at my house, and normal people would stop. We'd say that was enough. But if you have listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know this is not a normal podcast. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down the Chase Young stuff a little bit. There's not a lot to break down. And we're going to get to more questions from the texters. And we're going to drop another promo in here, 14-day free trial. Go to cleveland.com slash OSU for more info. We have surged again. We have surged again in the tech subscribers. Love you guys who do it. Um... I hope it's worth it. It really would be getting worth it now. Seriously, like if you did it for like the rest of November, if you did it started now and did it for two months, which is eight bucks, it's actually $7.98, it would take you through the national championship run. I just cannot imagine that you would think to yourself, well, that was throwing away eight bucks. I mean, really? I mean, really? And then you could decide, do I want to stick around through recruiting and everything else in spring football? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This would be a good time to try. So try. Let's talk about Chase Young. This is what people expected. There were no surprises here, right? And the key when all this stuff happens, it's why I didn't want to get ahead of myself. You don't know what you don't know. I'm not saying anything about anybody, but you just, you don't, you, you don't know what's out there. And so 
the NCAA put down its ruling, and and as I said to some of our tech subscribers, um, the difference here, and there's a there's a stark case I think to what Memphis is happening with Memphis, and it's really good basketball player who is having issues, and 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 maybe uh, the NCAA tried to do something with him, and Memphis said the heck with it, they got an injunction so he could still play rather than be suspended, and they are fighting it. The difference here, and I think it's a reasonable analogy, is are you going to plead guilty? And hope that you can like get a negotiated sentence that isn't that bad, or are you going to go to trial and hope that you get an innocent verdict and you don't get anything, but you also might get a guilty. So this is very much in play here. And Ohio State very much has adopted the stance of working out a plea deal. I think that's what they tried to do with the self-imposed um, things they tried to do. They didn't self-impose the bull ban uh, in, in 2011. They ended up with one in 2012. They tried to do some, but they didn't make the their offer of the plea deal sort of like um, substantial enough for the NCAA to take it all. So I think maybe they took some things away from that. And I think from, you know, they try to get out ahead of it. They, they don't try to proclaim innocence and say, we're going to fight to the end and say nothing happened and dare you to prove it. Because the problem with the NCAA is that the NCAA is the prosecutor and the judge. So the deck can be stacked against you sometimes and there's not much you can do. Um, it's probably the better idea, but you know what? Like if Memphis ends up with nothing for their guy, then people are going to say, why didn't Ohio State go go to the boards and, and, and try to make sure that Chase Young could play? Um, but they, they it, it, it's sort of like the, maybe the easier way out by you know trying to negotiate, but it's also a risk because you don't know what's going to happen, and they did lose him for two games, but it's not going to hurt him, clearly. And as people have suggested, this is what we said. We, ta- we talked about a month ago, leave Chase Young home from New Jersey. They are going to leave Chase Young home from New Jersey. He doesn't have to go. So is that such a terrible thing? Now, here, this is for my college football novel. Okay, this is not real life. So do not pluck this out and put this on a message board and think that this is a conspiracy of mine. I have my college football novel written in my head. I have the second and third books in the series in my head. And then the fourth book is a culmination of the first three books. Now, will I take that to my grave because I'll never get a chance to write them? Probably. I have a, uh, I have a children's book themed around the uh, Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library. Will I take that to my grave because I'll never get a chance to write it? Maybe. I have a series, a separate series of children's books. Will I... I don't know. If I stop talking to you people, it's because I finally go in my basement and just write. But this will appear in my college football novel. Let me set the scene. A dashing, handsome, well-connected, smart, charismatic intelligent reporter walks into the coach's office. Let's call this reporter Tug. Tug walks in and sits down, sits down with the head coach and says, Coach, I want to know what happened with this two-game suspension of your best player. I've been hearing things about who turned the player in. I want you to tell me who snitched on the player. And and the, the coach looks in the eyes of this dashing, charismatic um, almost otherworldly handsome college football reporter. And he tells this reporter, he says, Tug, I snitched. What? What? Twist? It's a twist. This is why I snitched, the head coach says to the devastatingly, almost beautiful, 
reporter. Our best player was getting a lot of attention. People were even talking about him as a Heisman candidate. I was getting a little worried about maybe our best players getting a little bit of a big head. I trust him, but I just was getting worried about it theoretically. I was getting worried that on our team we might have a Heisman competition. We got some very obvious Heisman, Heisman candidates on the offensive side of the ball. And throwing a defensive guy, man, that would get a little crazy. I was a little worried about maybe an injury. Now, I can't, I would insult the conference if I just said our best player was not going to play for two games on the schedule against our two worst opponents. That would be an insult. But if he was suspended, I also thought that our team that had nothing go wrong was maybe going to think this was easy. And I wanted to throw a monkey wrench. I wanted to create something to put that chip back on our team's shoulder. Because we have been feeling that all year. It has driven us. And I think that chip had shrunken so much with all the praise, with how well we have played, with the fact that we haven't even gone into the fourth quarter. It had shrunken so much it had almost disappeared. So in a world where I wanted to rest my best player, I wanted to avoid potential Heisman conflict, and I wanted to give our team something to rally around, I turned in our best player, knowing that it was a minor violation that wouldn't get more than two games and he'd be back from Penn State. Because I am playing 3D chess, baby. And the, the the gorgeous, the gorgeous male sports reporter would look across the table at the head coach and say, pretty smart coach. So that's going to be in the novel. I'm not saying, of course, that's not what happened. I mean, of course it's not. But like, wouldn't that be crazy, right? That's like next level kind of thing. So let's get through. I want to just talk about my novels. It's self-promoting. It's like the text thing. But I figure if you guys pay for texts, would you pay for a book? Would you buy a whole book? It's like a teenage girl. She goes to the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library. She gets stuck inside. It's a whole thing. Um, so, so the chase thing like works out in the end. It's fine. The thing that I'm sort of thinking about is I can't decide whether this is like the NCAA actually functioning correctly or if this is like the NCAA at its worst. And it's probably the, both at the same time. That It's like... How can the NCAA even be in a world where they are suspending a player for taking a loan from a family friend? But once it happened, because it is in the rule book, the school cooperates, the kid cooperates, they get it figured out quickly, and the penalty is relatively minor. Now, you know, Chase Young has this NCAA smoke around him. It's not a stink. I mean, it's not, if you understand it, you understand that, again, as it was f finally presented and accepted by the NCAA here, it's nothing. It's really, it's it's nothing. Um, if you're an old curmudgeon who just says, oh, those boys and their NCAA violations, look at all, you know, then uh, you're, I don't want to know what to tell you. So if you know somebody like that, kick him in the shin. Um, let's get to a couple more of the questions that we haven't gotten to yet. Doug, when Ryan Day says the offense is only scratching the surface, what specifically is he referring to? Utilizing the tight ends more? Thanks, Shelby. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he's talking about what we talked about earlier, some more dangerous deep shots, right? Pushing the ball down the field more. We've seen them go to the tight end. They're not afraid to go to the tight end. That's there when they want it. Uh, I think it's dy dynamicism in single plays. We've seen them hit big run plays. We had this stat earlier about the big pass plays. That's what I think. I think that that Dwayne Haskins is a little more dangerous down the field. And then I think the second thing is a Paris Campbell-type threat, that if you get a guy, you know, 
if you can have some receivers that you think you can turn some catch and runs into some big plays. They're super efficient. They're they're super um, balanced. They are not a thousand percent dynamic in the pass game. And so we know those plays are in there uh, and we know that they have good dudes. So I think to me, that's what he's referencing when he's, when he references scratching the surface, because I think if they need it, you know, they could try some more of that. They just haven't had to yet from the eight one three, which player is, or has been a bigger disappointment, Dontre Wilson or Demar McCall. I lean towards Dontre because I feel like he had more hype, but McCall has been invisible. And all we ever hear is about how he's going to pop. What's your take? So again, I mean, it's just not going to happen for Demario. Right, um, I kind of was on Demario and Baron Browning as the two guys I was really hoping to see something from this year. It's happened with Baron Browning; it hasn't happened with Demario. You know, he's in in the fourth quarter in Maryland. He's in there in a situation where, like, you'd expect, like, you know, like where third string guys were in. So, I, you know, I don't know what it is. Basically, at H back, it's KJ Hill or nobody. Jalen Gill hasn't been able to get any either. It's KJ Hill or nobody. It's a little bit of Austin Mack. And then at the tailback situation, Master Teague has taken that job. And like, if you watch who is a better tailback, you could not argue that Demario McCall is a better tailback than Master Teague. He's not. Demario McCall has some versatility. And then Garrett Wilson has taken some of the return stuff, right? So I think he just got squeezed out. And, but I think Dontre is a bigger disappointment. Dontre, you'll remember, as a true freshman, Dontre is in that 2013 class. He is a more, a much bigger contributor as a true freshman in 2013 than Ezekiel Elliott. He breaks his foot, I guess, early in 14 and is never the same. So that's the thing that's disappointing is that I remember in that, that summer before 2013 being at the Big Ten Media Days, and all we talked about with Urban was Dontre Wilson. I wrote a huge Dontre Wilson story, and the guys were like, chill out, chill out, chill out. But when you talk to the player, I mean, Urban was. When you talk to the players, all they talked about that summer was how Dontre Wilson looked. It's kind of like how people saw J.K. Dobbins coming. You thought something was coming with Dontre, and then he broke his foot on that touchdown catch, right, against Michigan State in 14. Is that right? I might be getting, be getting the year wrong. Was it 13 or 14 that he got hurt? But he was never the same. And then he kind of just didn't find his role. And so I feel bad for that guy because that guy, I think, you know, there's a place in the league for guys like that. And as much as I've been addicted to slot receivers and little guys and wanting Ohio State to have a little guy with speed that's a different kind of player and Mookie Cooper's going to be that, Dontre Wilson was that. And then he got hurt. From the 941, if Joe Burrow had agreed to stay and back up Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields had still agreed to transfer to Ohio State and both Burrow and Fields were on the team this year, who would you have chosen as the Buckeyes starting quarterback, Burrow or Fields? I would have chosen Joe Burrow. Man, I mean, it's impossible, right? Um, Joe is, I still, like, Justin's more talented, um, but Justin is also super efficient. Like, it's not like... And Joe can really wiggle. Joe really can move. Joe can really be uh, athletic and get away from pressure and find throwing lanes and pockets by moving his feet and be enough of a run threat to be a danger. Um, so I think like Justin's a little better athlete, but who is also super efficient. And Joe might be like a little bit more efficient, who's also a really good athlete. I'm not going to try to answer that. I mean, like I'm not trying to avoid the question. Um I mean, Joe is playing as well as anybody in the country, but also Joe Brady, who who had Orgeron brought in to be their offensive coordinator down there, they're throwing money at him because that guy figured out an offense, right? So you've got to be put in the right situations. And we know Stephen was talking about that earlier about you know the, the situation in Georgia. You've got to have a coaching staff. It's not, I just don't I don't believe that like Ryan Day in Ohio State's like the only place that could you have, figure out how to use a guy. Um, but Joe wasn't this last year, right? So Joe Joe took a year. 
Justin in year one as a starter is better than Joe Burrow was in year one as a starter. So like the fair comparison here is Joe Burrow 2019 versus just versus Justin Fields 2020. And let's see how that looks. But I think in a world where where Joe would have had all of last year, but he wouldn't have been a starter, but he would have been more in the system. I mean, maybe if they if if this exact scenario, which also like never would have happened, had actually played out, maybe you take Joe because Joe would have had four years in the system by then. Last year he would have been a fourth year backup to Dwayne, and he would have been a fifth year starter versus Justin coming in having played limited snaps at Georgia. I mean, I think you would have gone with Joe. If you would have had a spring competition, it would have been like Joe Burrow in his fourth year in the offense versus Justin Fields, who got here in January. Who's going to look better in the spring? Joe Burrow would have looked better. So, like, if that's truly the scenario, maybe Joe Burrow wins that job. It never would have happened because Justin was going to go somewhere where he had a chance to start right away, and if Joe Burrow was here, that wouldn't have happened. But let's see what my big takeaway here is. Let's see what Justin Fields looks like in 2020. Justin Fields is never going to be a fifth-year college quarterback. He's going to be in the NFL before that. So Joe's at a place that a lot of the best college quarterbacks never get to. So that's uh, that's something of an edge for Joe. It's also a tribute to Joe for working toward that. Um, as I said earlier, I always believed in 2020 Justin Fields. I thought 2019 Justin Fields might take some time to, to come around. Let's remember what first-year starter Joe Burrow looked like, and it wasn't this. It was game manager JT Barrett type. And let's imagine what 2020 Justin Fields might look like. And I think when we're talking about deep ball and all this other stuff, that's going to come in. We're going to see, I think, Justin Fields with everything at his disposal next year. And that includes a more experienced Garrett Wilson, Julian Fleming coming in, Chris Olave in year three. I think some more super dynamic options. Um, We'll have to see how the run game works out if J.K. goes. But I think more dynamic options in the pass game. And if the running back isn't quite J.K., you lean more on pass. And like in a world where Justin Fields is throwing for 240 yards or 225 yards, whatever it is right now per game, I really think you might be looking at a 300-yard-per-game Justin Fields next year. Um, Will Ohio State have more players on scholarship on Saturday or points? We haven't made our pick yet. I think I'm going to pick in the 80s. I think it's like that Iowa game in the 50s is the highest scoring Big Ten game. I think in 1950, I think it's either 83-0 or 85 nothing Iowa. I think I'm going to pick over that. Um, just as a way to disrespect Rutgers, who does not earn my respect. Uh, this is the question I just talked about from the 412. As good as Fields has been this year, this year, could he make a Joe Burrow-like leap in his second year as a starter and light the world on fire throwing the ball next year? I had not read that before I said that. From the 412, you and I are like on the exact same wavelength, and I would change your could he make a jump? Could he make a Joe Burrow-like leap? I would change that to he will make a Joe Burrow-like leap. I would absolutely, as an Ohio State fan, and I think the Ohio State coaching staff, operate under that assumption. Operate under the assumption that the Justin Fields where we are seeing now is 60% of what he might be next year. From Kenny Stabler, the only worry with Fields seems to be the downfield deep balls. I feel like at some point we're going to have to take a deep shot versus the best teams. We're on the same wavelengths. We're all thinking the same. I agree. Is there a certain number of donuts we'll each have to eat at the meetup? There's a meetup. You got to be a tech subscriber to get all the details. Not trying to be a jerk. That's the deal. There's a meetup coming. I'm not trying to be a jerk. We'll also maybe try to do something if we can in Indianapolis. This is just me talking off the top of my head right now. Maybe less official, but like something like, hey, we will be at this bar on Friday night before the game if people want to swing by. And that will be for everybody. This is a text thing. 
I gotta make a, I gotta make some some scratch, but uh, there might be a limited number of donuts. But the main thing is, before you get there, don't claim that you can eat a certain number of donuts and then not do it. That would be only my only advice for people who are coming. Also, by the way, this is my opportunity since you guys know that that Stephen and, and Nathan are not here. I can finally tell you people what I really think of those two. I'm just kidding. Does field immediate success solidify day as a QB whisperer? I wanted to get to this. If so, can you see multiple top end quarterbacks committing together with the plan? If I win the job, yes, me. If not, I'll transfer with a bunch of clout because I've been to the Ryan Day quarterback finishing school. I love the finishing school, right? We talked about the Urban Meyer finishing school for coaches. That's from Greg C74. Um, I had this question, right? After last season, which was it more? Was it more that Dwayne Haskins made Ryan Day look good or more that Ryan Day made Dwayne Haskins look good? And Dwayne Haskins has been named the starter for the Washington Redskins for the rest of the season. They have an interim head coach, but I'm imagining, I haven't read about it, Kareem Copeland for the Post and some other good reporters there, Les Carpenter, I'm sure, are covering it. I don't know why that came down. Why the direct, If there's a directive that we're playing the rookie quarterback to see what he can do, and we're sort of giving up on winning games this year, at least we're not prioritizing that, that's probably not coming from the interim head coach, Bill Callahan, who's replaced Jay Gruden. Because Bill Callahan wants to win every game. That's probably an ownership thing, that or GM, that made that decision. The reports on Dwayne so far would lead me to say Ryan Day made Dwayne Haskins look good. And when you look at the way this offense has picked up with a first-year starter with Justin Fields this year. Um, so that makes it more like, yes, it's Ryan Day, the QB whisperer, who maybe helped Dwayne Haskins raise his level so that Dwayne Haskins, who I still think will be a good NFL quarterback, did not step into the Washington Redskins ready to set the world on fire right away, which is fine, but also he didn't. You know, Kyler Murray is starting for the Cardinals and doing some things. Dwayne Haskins was not handed the starting job, was not deemed to be ready. There have been some stories in Washington about maybe Dwayne behaving as if he's not ready uh, for all of this, and that's reporting there, talking to sources there. The Washington Post has written stories like that, and that maybe Ryan Day just really helped Dwayne Haskins maximize himself. Um, I didn't know which way it might go. I really liked Dwayne as a person and a player. I thought Dwayne was really good. Uh, Dwayne, again, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, was was definitely square peg round hole for a while, and and you know even as good as that offense was and as good as that plan was, it still wasn't a thousand percent the exact perfect fit for a guy with Dwayne Haskins' skills. But I do think in the end. I don't know that it's going to affect any quarterback recruiting because I still think I think Ohio State kind of is already at the point where they can get almost anybody they want. Now, there are two kids in Southern California, and they are they are big in Southern California right now. C.J. Stroud is from Southern California, but there's the kid going to Clemson, D.J., that has a last name that I'm not sure of. He's going to Clemson, and this other kid who just decommitted from USC uh, and is going to Alabama. Let me see on that. So that's D.J. Let me see if I can pronounce this. I'm sorry. I'm not as hooked to recruiting as I used to be. I got a lot going on. DJ Ujalile from St. John Bosco, which is Wyatt Davis's high school. He's going to Clemson. He's the number one quarterback in 2020. Bryce Young, who's from down the road at Mater D, which is a huge 
uh, power program. He was committed to USC. He decommitted. He's going to Alabama. They're the two best quarterbacks in the country. Neither of them are coming to Ohio State. Um, when you go down the list, it's funny. that I mean, it's not funny. It's expected. The best quarterbacks in the country are one, Southern California, two, Southern California, three, Texas, four, Texas, five, South Carolina, six, Southern California, seven, Southern California. Number seven is C.J. Stroud who most people think is going to end up at Ohio State. But again, they're going for C.J. Stroud. They're not going for for DJ uh, and for Bryce. So if your question is like, will Ryan Day get to the point where it's like, well, if DJ Ujulele or Bryce Young, and I apologize, are sitting in Southern California saying, where can I go to give myself the best chance to be a great quarterback? Obviously, that's Ohio State. Obviously, that's the Ryan Day offense and the Ryan Day program. Like, they're not there yet. Jack Miller, they really like. Jack Miller, if he's healthy, is good. C.J. Stroud, they like. If he's healthy, is good. They really, really like McCord. McCord, I think they plucked. McCord, I think, identifying him early in 2021. I think McCord, he's not ranked as like the top quarterback in 2021, but I, I think it feels like in 2021, Ohio State could have gone after any quarterback in the country. And... The guy they picked, the number one quarterback is going to Oklahoma, number two to Washington, number three to USC, um, number five to Michigan, that J.J. McCarthy kid that, that Ohio State was looking at. Number six is McCord. They clearly picked McCord over McCarthy. The other kids, I'm not sure how much they were involved in. Oh, one of them is Sam Heward. Heward's good at Washington, so they weren't going to get him. Um, but Brock Vandegrift, who's from Georgia and is going to Oklahoma. I don't know, but it's like, so what Lincoln Riley has at Oklahoma, right? Although Lincoln Riley got, you know, he got Jalen Hurts this year. He didn't have another guy in the pipeline after Kyler. Um, could Ryan Day get to that point? Like, like maybe, like, I don't think they're there yet. I don't think they're at the point where like every great quarterback recruit in the country wants to be a Buckeye. Could they get there? I think maybe. And I do think that it worked with Dwayne Haskins and now it's working with Justin Fields. If the question is, does it solidify Day as a quarterback whisperer? I think the answer, long-winded, this is what happens when you let me go by myself. Long-winded answer to that is yes. Is Minnesota the real deal? Sorry, it's Rutgers week. If you're worried about anything with the exception of Chase Young, you're almost as crazy as someone who thinks they can eat an entire large deep dish pizza from the 616. No, no. I think Minnesota might be better than Northwestern was last year. Uh, Tanner Morgan, I think, is one of those guys, right? I mean, there's been like sort of fake quarterbacks through the years. I think that I've made fun of like Drew Tate and Drew Stanton and Drew Drew, anybody named Drew, Curtis Painter, Scott Tolzien, right? Like the good like middle tier Big Ten quarterbacks that you're supposed to be afraid of. I think Tanner Morgan at Minnesota might be like better than that. And their receivers are legit, so I do think it will be a test for this Ohio State secondary to a greater de degree um, than they have faced this year if they wind up with Minnesota in the Big Ten championship game. Like, are they the real deal? No. Like, in a world where, where like, we say, is Wisconsin the real deal, like, as an Ohio State challenger? And the answer is no, because their depth of talent and depth of recruiting across the board just pales in comparison. Then I can't say, is Minnesota the real deal? I guess it's two questions, like, is Minnesota the real deal? And is Minnesota the real deal as someone that, Ohio, that could beat Ohio State are two different things. I think they might be number one. I don't think they're number two. And that's not an insult. They are a team who is maximizing what it has in the West, where the West is not very good. Now, they beat Penn State. They exposed Penn State's flaws in the secondary. And uh, my friend Bruce Hooley had mentioned that to us the week 
of the game, was worried about Penn State's corners, as, as many others were. I, I wasn't because I don't know what's happening. Um, but they, they exposed that. And I think that passing game is real. But again, it's not, it's just, we, I mean, Jeff Okuda, Damon Arnett, and Sean Wade aren't tested on a weekly basis, but like, I think everybody knows they can do it. So not something to be worried about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nathan, someone asked about Nathan's series. It's going to start this week. I think it's going to start on Thursday. So try to be ready for that. Uh, random question. I don't know if you, I know you don't drink and I really don't. I don't drink like for any reason. It's not like a belief in my system. I just think beer tastes stinky and uh, I just don't have a need to drink other stuff most of the time. So I just don't, mostly because the inhibitions that people uh, no longer have after they get some alcohol in them, I am already free of those inhibitions. I, in my life, have numerous times been asked in social situations if I am drunk because I'm acting drunk when I'm not drunk. So I would say, in general, I don't need alcohol to act like a crazy person and to, like, let it loose. Now, when I let it loose, you can blame it on the juice. Um... I know you don't drink, but if Tim May invited you out for a bourbon and a cigar to swap stories of the trade and you two are involved, would you oblige and have a bourbon and a cigar with good old Tim? And with that, I digress. Is this Tim May? Is this Tim May? Because the answer is like, of course, I have done it on occasion. Um, Tim seems like a guy that's full of stories from the 619. Like, and I've heard them all, but I would hear them all again. Um, it is a it is a very interesting thing, and there's a, there's a there's a question, another sort of inside journalism question, and, and we'll get done here soon. Um, I mean, I could go. I mean, do you? We don't want. It's like let's start this big duck. I talk. We'll do two hours of us together, and then two more hours of just me. Who votes for that besides me? Um, let's see. Ooh, who's sending me? Chase is back. Oh yeah, I sent out the Chase is back. Um, someone asked about oh. Brad from the 419. Journalism question. So anyway, before we get to that journalism question, then we'll, then I think we'll get out of here. I think we've asked a lot of them. Uh, covered a lot of questions. Um, you compete with people. And Tim uh, Tim is, was on the beat when I started here. My very first year, you walk in and it's like, oh, that's the guy who owns the beat. And it was Tim May. And he was the exact same guy there then that he is now. That he's retired from the dispatch and he's moved on to Letterman Row. Uh, and he continues to be a guy who... Um, is just a presence in every room. He is a great newsbreaker, one of the great newsbreakers that I've been around. And the reason that he's a newsbreaker is that he establishes relationships with people. And you can watch him work um, the way everybody in that building. And he tells stories of like back in the old days when John Cooper was there, you know, like Tim May would be like the only guy there at a practice or him and one or two other guys. It wasn't this world where 20 people or 50 people were covering Ohio State every day. And Tim May like had his run of the place. If, if Tim May wanted to go in John Cooper's office, office for an hour and talk about football plays, he would. And Tim has a really smart football mind as well. Tim always loved doing like play of the week at the dispatch and stuff like that where where he wants to talk X's and O's and when you talk X's and O's with him and when football people talk X's and O's with him you can tell he knows what he's talking about and that helps you establish relationships because people gain respect for that so um, Tim is one of those guys that uh, he and I talk all the time we talk constantly and we have a respect for each other and he's been very kind to me um, and I've been like a, 
a huge admirer of Tim Mays. And I think it goes back. It's it. The baseline of it is that I think we both work really hard. And so when he gets something and beats me, which is what happened 99% of the time, I mean, I know that he got that because he worked his butt off for it. Um, and if he thought I wrote a good story and he would tell me that he, he knew that I did it cause I worked hard to do that. So, um, like I would tell stories and it's funny, like I do think in Ohio, um, Sometimes the competition on the beats is not as stiff, and I don't mean to be like a like an old East Coast guy, but I I started off in the in the you know I was two years in in the Chicago suburbs not with my head up my butt, didn't know what I was doing, covered the Jordan Bulls for like a year, um, just as a clueless twenty four year old at the edge of the pack, uh, and then went and covered baseball for four years in the Philadelphia suburbs, but that meant I was around the Philly baseball writers every day, and they were. There was a lot of respect there, but it was cutthroat, man. And like New York is cutthroat and just a different level of like there's not cooperation. You're trying to kill somebody. I don't know that people, sports writers in Ohio are trying to kill each other for scoops. Um, when I go to, you know, the Browns, I mean, like Mary Kay Cabot owns that beat. She has owned that beat for years. Um, she breaks everything. But there's a lot of cooperation on that beat with stuff. So like, which is fine. I'm not saying there's one way is better than the other. Um, but when you work with people for a long time, you do gain a lot of respect for the people that you do respect. And you also figure out who you don't respect. Um, but Tim is a guy that, you know, from day one until the last day that either of us is covering this beat, I will have the utmost respect for Um because he is just a absolutely tremendous beat writer. Journalism question. How do you guys cover the game? Are all three of you in the press box the whole game? Do you watch every play and make your own observations? Or are you usually trying to look for specific things based on stories you're working on, etc.? Brad from the 419. So if you don't care about how journalism happens from college beat, you can stop now. I think I'm going to be done. Um, I watch. I bring my binoculars to every game. Uh, I try to watch every play and look for things. Um, we don't know what we're writing ahead of time. I'm probably maybe not going to be in the press box for Rutgers because I don't, I don't think the story's in the press box and all three of us are going. So I'm going to go, I think, look for the story uh, during the game because three stories about how Ohio State beat Rutgers 88 to nothing I don't think is the way to go. But I always tell this story uh, from a journalism standpoint, and you have to look for things when you're at the game. You have to look for things that aren't on TV. Otherwise, you could just watch it on TV. Because guess what? On repl- on TV, you've got it replay. You can hear what the announcers are saying. Um, you can run back and watch specific plays and double-check who made this block, what was this route. So you're losing stuff by being at the game. So then you have to gain something. And the thing that you can gain is I spend a lot of times when it happens – if there's a, a series for the offense and something happened, I want to watch the quarterback and who he interacts with on the sidelines on that next series. And maybe I won't watch Ohio State's defense because I'm watching through my binoculars and watching the quarterback. And who did he go talk to? And did he look angry? And did did somebody come over to console him? Did someone come to congratulate him? Was he working on something specific? Did somebody look injured? You have to look for stuff like that. And I'll tell this story because I tell it to all the young journalists I know when I tell them, when you're at a game, you have to look for things that aren't on TV. When I was a beat writer covering the Philadelphia Phillies, mostly what I would do is uh, get on the computer and drink cherry Coke. And the... <laughs> There was a game where one of the players hit a home run, and when you hit a home run, you come back to the dugout and you walk down the steps, and the manager is standing right by the dugout, and you high-five the manager and everything. This guy hit a home run, and when he came back to the dugout, he did not go down the steps that everybody goes down. He went to the middle of the dugout and went down another set of steps. And I didn't notice it because I was getting another cherry Coke, and I had my head up my butt. And this guy noticed it and asked about it and wrote about it and it was not the beginning of the end but it was a signal about the disconnect between the manager and the players on that team 
And I don't know if it was on TV or not, and they maybe didn't notice it, but the best beat writer on that beat, being at the game, noticed it, and it told a story about that team. So from that day forward, when I'm at a game, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that's not on TV that isn't an incidental thing, but it tells a story about a player or about a team. And if you catch it yourself, then you can ask about it. And you might find an inherent truth that a player or a coach would not reveal with his words, but he reveals with his actions in the heat of the moment when a TV camera's not on him. But I hope in that moment my binoculars are on him. So when I'm at a game, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, All right. I think we got it. I mean, again, I could go another three hours. Um, I think we covered most of the stuff. Um, We appreciate you guys sending in questions. Um, We're going to get to more stuff. Let me end with this one. Who would I take from the 330? 2000, would I take Dwayne Haskins? Would you take 2017 JT? Would you take playoff Cardale? Would you take 2013 Braxton? Or would you take 2010 Pryor? Or would you take Justin Fields? Okay, okay. So these are the options. Justin Fields this year. Dwayne Haskins last year. JT Barrett the year before that. Cardale in the playoffs. 2013 Braxton or 2010 Pryor? And you add that person to this Ohio State team and everything else is the same. Man, that is such a good question. So 2010 prior is third year prior, right? And now this is the thing that we get into, which we've done a lot, I think, with Jim Trestle players. Because I think you know, people, as much as they loved uh, Jim Trestle as a coach and they respected the way he led the program here um, until the end, and some people still after the end... Um, Jim Trestle's a good football coach. Jim Trestle was a good football coach at Ohio State. Jim Trestle's offense at Ohio State drove a lot of Ohio State fans crazy in the midst of all that success. Um, So I think the idea of a 2010 prior, third year prior who gets it, who was a threat both ways, he he doesn't throw it as well as Justin. But he is so dangerous. He is so dangerous. And again, like I might take 2020 Justin Fields over everybody, but he's not available right now. This is first year 2019 Justin Fields. I would be tempted by Pryor because we never saw the fully formed best of, best of, best of Pryor. His quarterback's coach was an overmatched guy who never should have been his quarterback's coach. He was in a system that was still trying to sort of figure itself out. He never came back as a senior. So I think there is the lingering question of what Terrell Pryor, at his absolute best, with the absolute best coaching and the absolute right system, what would that have looked like? And I think maybe, you know, Mike Yersich and Ryan Day, this 2019 Ohio State team, might be what would offer that to him. I am very tempted by that. I am very tempted by that. Uh, I would not take 2017 JT... And again, this is not the JT Barrett bashing program, um, but um, it's just not enough top end. Uh, I would not take playoff Cardale because I think they jerry-rigged that to make Cardale um, absolutely maximize everything he could do. And he had Devin Smith, which this team doesn't quite have. He had Ezekiel Elliott, which this team doesn't quite have. That's no, no offense to J.K. Dobbins. He had an offensive line I think that this team doesn't quite have. 
that was a championship team coming together that our Cardale dropped into. He didn't have to build anything there. So I wouldn't take him. I wouldn't take 2013 Braxton because he's so dynamic in the run game, but the pass game is just not there in the same way as it is with these other guys. So my choice would come down to 2019 Justin Fields, 2018 Haskins, or 2010 Pryor. Um, Dwayne's really good. Like, Dwayne gets, like, Dwayne was ready, fully ready. Justin, it's hard to get away from Justin. I would not be, I'm not looking to trade Justin Fields off this team for almost anything. I will go with Pryor just because, you don't, you see what Justin and Dwayne look like with this staff and this talent. You don't know what you might hit on with Terrell Pryor in this world. So just because of that unknown, um, I would be thrilled with either 2019 Fields, 2018 Haskins, but I would be super intrigued by 2010 Terrell Pryor with Mike Yersich in the room, with Ryan Day calling plays, uh, and with the chance to, to sort of come into the modern college football era. You know, he's one of those guys, he was a little bit ahead of his time with his skill set, with the way the game was evolving back then. Um, Boy, you give him the right tools and the right coaching and the right structure to sort of help him stay on the straight and narrow. Boy, oh boy, that could be interesting. All right. Appreciate you guys. Drop the iTunes review. We'll all three be in New Jersey for some reason on Saturday for the 3.30 kick. Uh, really good stuff building up. Make sure you check out this Justin Fields series. It's going to be like five or six different pieces. It should start Thursday at cleveland.com. A lot of different moving parts to that. Um, check out the videos. Try our YouTube channel, cleveland.com and Ohio State and YouTube. Google all that together. You'll find it. Subscribe. You get our, vi- our videos all the time. We recorded a really good one the other day and accidentally deleted it, but stuff happens. Steven on basketball, Wednesday night, Ohio State Villanova. That's a big one. Check with that. We'll, we'll continue to sprinkle in basketball here and there on the podcast. It didn't make sense to do like a big Ohio State Villanova preview four hours before tip-off, so we didn't get to it here today. Uh, but we certainly do appreciate you guys listening. Again, try the text, free trial, cleveland.com slash OSU. Thanks for listening to me ramble on. Man, it feels good to get back in front of a mic with nobody else to inhibit me. This is what makes me drunk. I get drunk on the power of a podcast and the sound of my own voice. And that was Buckeye Talk.